Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody. It's Ben and Dan coming at you with another live episode of Juanced. Dan, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Even uh, it's raining, it's cold, it's windy, but... Uh... I'm positive. The long so so cold, things are doing good. The long, cold, dark winter is upon us here, which uh, which for us is like, what, 60 degrees outside here in Rehovot? No, it's, it's like a solid, you know, 45, no, 50 degrees Fahrenheit and raining, which is as cold as it ever gets here. Dan, Dan and I both grew up in the, <laughs> Dan, Dan and I both grew up in the Midwest. So, uh, so, the, so the frozen chosen. So this the thought of this being real winter is a little bit odd to us. I, I'm still wearing shorts. Years. You can't see it now on Zoom, but I'm still wearing shorts. And we have we have a fun episode today. We'll introduce our guest in a second, Professor Gil Troy. Where are you from originally, though, Gil? Originally from Queens, New York. So you're but, also. Uh, I spent twenty years in Montreal, so I know from winter. <laughs> and I call myself a, I call myself a meteorological Zionist because every day in Jerusalem is a pleasure weatherwise. Yeah, Montreal's the real deal. That's that's winter. I mean, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, so we got winters, but like. Montreal was one of those places where even for us, it was like, that's, that's a little... Yeah, yeah, we outdo you, right? <laughs> you outdo, you outdo. It had to have signs to boast about. No, no, there are many lovely things about Montreal. I, I grew up in northern Indiana, and, you know, I thought that was cold, but I've heard, I've heard Minnesota and then certainly Montreal uh, top yeah. us. And also, the winter never ends. It starts really early, and it just doesn't end. Well, what's the saying? There are two seasons, right? Uh, winter and July, right? How's right. <laughs> well, we used to say winter and road work. Winter and road work. So, so before we fully properly introduce our guest today, just a couple of announcements. <clears throat> so uh, for those of you who tuned in last week, we had a, a great episode with Dr. Natan Davidovitz, who as a public service, um, he has been collecting, compiling, analyzing, and writing thoughts and updates on COVID data, primarily relating to Israel, but also insights related to, uh, to the rest of the world. Um, so what we're going to do is we're introducing uh, a nice uh, collaboration for all of our listeners, uh, and that's going to be um, data and insights as compiled by Dr. Natan Davidovitz. Again, and you can you can follow him on his Facebook page where he publishes these regularly, but we're also going to be sharing them on our show. So 10,022, that's the number of new COVID cases identified yesterday here in Israel. That's our highest daily total since the pandemic began, and that pretty much puts us in first place in the world in the number of new cases over the past week per capita. Coupled with that is a 10.1% positivity rate, the highest we've seen since October. It's important to note, however, that Israel has one of the highest testing rates in the world, which makes us seem like we have more cases than other countries with who have lower testing rates. A better metric for comparison is the percent positive, where we are high but nowhere near the highest in the world, and that would be Mexico at 45%, for example. Whoa. So we are now in week two of our uh, quote-unquote tighter uh, part of the third lockdown that we've had, following close to two weeks of a 
looser lockdown. Percent positive rates and new critical cases are rising slower and possibly leveling out, leveling out, which is encouraging, but still not dropping yet. It's important to remember that we are not yet seeing the effects of the tighter lockdown. Rather, we're seeing, uh, so it seems the combined beneficial effects of the looser lockdown and vaccination of roughly a quarter of Israel's population, also leading the world in that number. So we're certainly a, a country of extremes in that point. The reason why the numbers are not yet improving, uh, he thinks, is due to the British and South African virus mutations gaining ground in Israel, which are somewhere between 30 to 70 percent more transmissible than the original uh, COVID-19 strain. And this is why the current strict lockdown is so critical and will likely be extended by another week or two. So if anyone wants to hear that full episode um, and the discussion and analysis and insights about COVID, what is a virus, what is a vaccine, how does it work, what are the differences between the vaccines, what are the mutations, uh, we had a great podcast last week with Dr. Nathan Davidovitz, and he spells it Davidovix, and you can check out that episode. You can follow him on Facebook for his regular insights and analysis on uh, COVID. And uh, hopefully this will be a regular update that uh, we provide to you, our listeners, um, through the generous uh, donation of, uh, of Nathan. Hopefully, hopefully not for too long, though. Hopefully not for too. Well, hopefully the arc of the news will just be better and better. Right. Um, so go, going off of that, if we're talking about regu regular contributions, uh, this is a nice uh, segue. Great segue. I like it. Um, listen, as you all know, we're a listener supported podcast and we rely on the generous support of listeners like you to continue this and to keep it going. So uh, if you're interested in uh, helping us as we grow. I think we're in 65 countries now. 68 countries. I looked it up right before. That's true. It's a hobby. It's been a hobby of mine to look up how many countries we have listeners. Now. Yep. Uh, you can make a one-time contribution on our PayPal, an ongoing contribution, which we prefer on our Patreon account. Uh, or if your organization or your uh, company is interested in becoming a sponsor, please reach out to us, www.juanced.com. I'll just mention on that, you can become uh, a sponsor also and invite us to do a live Juanced Live episode specifically for your community, and we are thrilled to do another such one with the Jewish Agency partnership of Benny's hometown, Minneapolis, and my current hometown, the Chovot Israel, and we will be doing another Meet the Emiratis with friends of ours from the UAE um, as um, Israelis and as American Jews, and anyone who wants to tune in can get to know four fantastic friends uh, from yep. Dubai and from around the Really, world. really terrific. Uh, for more details, you can check out our Facebook page. Uh, Facebook page, website, www.juance.com. And without further ado, we are thrilled to introduce today's guest. And we really wanted to have him on the show because, uh, well, last week's event on Capitol Hill certainly shook uh, the United States, shook a lot of people here in Israel, whether you supported them or were against the event. Um, it was certainly a um, difficult moment to watch. And uh, coming up in just a few days, we have the presidential inauguration of the next American president, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Benny, you want to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. Uh, distinguished scholar in North American history at McGill University, cur currently living in Jerusalem. Gil Troy is an award-winning American presidential historian and a leading Zionist activist. Recently designated a, a Dan, you have to say the name oh, of the Algaminer. The Algaminer, J100, one of the top 100 people positively influ is influencing Jewish life. Troy wrote The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s, and 10 other books on the American presidency. What a slacker. Only 10 books. I know, right? 
uh, amongst <laughs> which uh, we'd like to also talk about a book that he uh, uh, well, was two recent books, two recent books, one which he collaborated with Natan Sharansky called Never Alone Prison Politics and My People and the Zionist Ideas uh, is, an, is his newest book, an update of the 1959 classic, The Zionist Idea. Um, he appears as a featured commentator on CNN and, in, and has been interviewed on most major North American TV and radio networks. Troy regularly publishes essays in the American, Canadian, and Israeli media, including for the New York Times, the Daily Beast, and the Jerusalem Post. Welcome to Jewanst, Professor Gil Troy. How are you doing? Great to you, and uh, great to be with you. And I love that name, Juanced. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate you. it. And we very know uh, we're big fans of yours, and we follow your writing. And, and you're all about also nuanced, nuanced perspectives on Israeli politics, on American politics, on uh, Jewish ideas. And so uh, it's re- it's really, um, I think actually when we first started brainstorming the show, you were one of the first names of people that that we had that we wanted to get on the show, and we're glad uh, you could join us. I'm honored. So what what was Especially your name? As you say, such an auspicious moment in. Uh, in the history of all democracies, not just the history of the United States. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll use that to, to segue to, to kind of the timing. Um, two major events, one happened last week, and a bigger event is going to happen later this week. And we're going to air this on uh, on Thursday. Thursday, Thursday evening. Thursday uh, evening, uh, we're going to be States. airing. We're going to be in show. Is, is the inauguration going to be taking place by then? When, when is the inauguration? It will have taken place by then. The inauguration, I believe, actually is tomorrow. 21st. Wednesday, January 20th States. at noon. The 20th at noon. So the inauguration will have taken place after we recorded, but before this is aired, unless you are listening live. Um, love to hear your, your, what were your initial reactions when you saw the news feed, and I think we were all glued to our television, of people riding in front of Congress and then storming um, storming the, the Congress building? What, what was your... Capitol. It was, it was it was it was devastating. You know, it, it inspired me to make up a new word called fake patriots. They're fake patriots. Hmm. How could it be? People waving the American flag could also come in with a Confederate flag. How could it be that there wasn't one person in that rotunda who said, "Take down that Confederate flag. It's desecrating this holy space." That didn't even happen even during Civil War period. So it was really, and it was a historic moment. I mean, never, you know, I'm, I'm a historian. I rarely use the phrase historic moment. I rarely use the phrase unprecedented uh, uh, moment, but this was the American people, right? And I'm going to get to that in a second. Sure. Turn on their holy of holies, the temple of democracy. Now, the nuance is in two parts. One, it wasn't the American people. The Washington Post had an article yesterday counting 300 ruffians, thugs, hooligans, um, people say that's an undercount. So 500, 700, we're talking about a country with 330 million. We have to be very, very careful not to overemphasize these people, not to give them too much play. One of the things that happens in the modern world is we give too much play to the right, the far right, and the far left. And we have to go back to what I call the silenced majority, that, that lovely middle, um, not of mushy moderates, of marshmallow moderates, but of muscular moderates. So the first thing is it wasn't the American people, it was some Americans inflamed, manipulated, demagogued, went. And the second thing, look at the language that was used, defiled, desecrated, temple of democracy. That's religious language. It is and it's very interesting that in an increasingly secular America, when it comes to these kind of symbols, we still fall back on the notion of holiness. And um, the upside to what we saw is two. One is that while many people have a lot of criticism of the Capitol Police, and obviously they were unprepared and didn't defend the perimeter. One Capitol Hill officer said that they have three jobs, the property, 
the process and the people. The property obviously was overrun. Although if you notice, like in the rotunda, nobody attacked any of the historic paintings. They could have burnt the place down and they didn't. There still was a weird reverence among these fake patriots, these unpatriotic patriots. True. That's yeah. number one. The process was interrupted, but heroically from right to left, every member of Congress, every Senator returned that night to do the business. So they weren't, it was not disrupted. It was only temporarily disrupted. And third, and now we're seeing how close they came, 30 feet from the speaker's lobby, 30, 100 feet from here or there, not one member of Congress, not one staffer, not one visitor, not one journalist was harmed. And that is an extraordinary testament to the success of the Capitol Police on this day when obviously there had many, many, many failures. And the one other happier note is that this was an attack on what I call the invisible presidency, on the, the invisible constitution. In Jewish terms, it would be the oral law, but the written law, right? The, the, the formal visible presidency, the formal constitution has held. It wasn't an insurrection, it was a riot. Can you define for our listeners what in technically we hear the, the we hear we hear the term insurrection being thrown around by the media we hear it often uh, being used by by people that we know what what defines an insurrection and how is this not technically an insurrection so it's a very interesting dance here uh, I'll get to that to the, to the to the core of your question in a second well, I I have been uncomfortable with the language of sedition of insurrection um, it's very interesting because if we go back to the L A riots the Los Angeles riots um, which came from the left, African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, um, they sometimes to find the use of the word riot disrespectful. And they sometimes use the word insurrection. Insurrection as opposed to, a riot is, is, is an explosion of violence, usually uh, involving mobs um, and destruction of property and also some loss of life. Let's say emotion uh, is often involved, right? Hmm? It's very emotional. It's very, very emotional, it's... right? It's sometimes political, it's sometimes not, right? An insurrection, is, 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 is more defined, um, it's more focused, it's political by definition, insurrection cannot be apolitical. And, and the thing that where I stop uh, is that it's often intended to up, upend the existing order, to displace the, the current powers that be. And, um, and, and 300, 500, 700 of those lunatics are not shaking the very foundations of the United States of America. It was a symbolic attack, it was a desecration, it was a defiling, but to call it an insurrection gives them a power that they don't really deserve, um, gives them an agency that they didn't really have. And while a few of the people in the crowd indeed wanted that, we're starting to see more and more people who didn't, who were simply inflamed by the demagoguery of Donald Trump, who were there at the moment. This was not an attempt to really depose the United States uh, of America, the, the American government. And well, so that's me, why I'm uncomfortable with the word insurrection and even sedition. Um, I call it hooliganism. I call it thuggishness. I call it violence. I've condemned the violence on the left. I've condemned the violence on the right. Um, but sedition, saying you're, you're a traitor, is going that extra level, which I think a few of them were, but I, I wouldn't think all of them were. Let, let me push back on you. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll note that we have uh, we do have a live audience, and already we have a couple of questions that ha that uh, listeners have uh, asked on the comment section. We'll try to include them in the discussion and we encourage other listeners, if you have uh, questions or comments, you're welcome, uh, of course, respectfully to, uh, to add them and include them and we will try to get them into the conversation. I had um, my initial instinct when I saw what was happening and ever since Trump came 
Trump came to power. And it's not a left or right thing because, you know, I, I really I have a hard time taking strong positions on American politics. Even I don't vote in America anymore. I'll, I'll put that out there. I've lived here for too long and I choose I choose not to vote in American politics, but I follow it very closely. Um, and there are some things that the left does that I support and some things that the left does that I disagree with and vice versa. Some things that the right does that I support and, and other things that I disagree with um, regarding American politics. Well, I guess regarding Israeli politics here. Um, ever since Trump came to power, and as you know, you saw the the Twitter barrage and the constant calling out of election fraud and uh, tampering and the stealing of America. My initial instinct is is um, he he's putting on a media show. He's putting on a, a um, it, it's it's a it's a promotional gimmick for him. I don't think he takes it seriously. And I had a con a deep conversation with with a friend of mine. I, I won't say who it is. He has to remain anonymous. But he's a deep thinker. He's a scholar. Um, serious person who knows America extremely well. It's um, not me. It's not you. Um, who knows America extremely well from the inside and out. And he gave a lot of, he might even be listening. He gave a lot of legitimacy to not necessarily the violence that occurred, but to the entire movement that these were actually not fake triots, as you said, but patriots who, who were uh, trying to hold on to what they felt was being stolen from them. So I'm going to give you a little devil's advocate to play here for the sake of our discussion. Mm-hmm. You said, surprisingly, there was no none or little damage done. Um, thankfully, no members of Congress or staffers were hurt. Could it be that the majority of those who were involved, certainly in the protests and even in the storming of the Capitol, really felt that they were doing their patriotic duty as Americans and that the election was being stolen from them? Could, could you know... Is it hooliganism or could there be, you know, some some authentic uh, emotions, whether they're factually correct or not, but authentic emotions on uh, on the part of those who were protesting and eventually storming the Capitol? I think we have to make a huge distinction between those who were protesting, and those who were storming the Capitol. Um, I, I start with an assumption, as you as do you, of complexity, right? My Rebbe in all this is Mayor Ed Koch who said, if you agree with me on seven of 12 things, please vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 of 12 things, please see a psychiatrist. <laughs> and, and, and it makes me bananas that if I vote for Hillary Clinton, I have to think she's perfect. And I have to think Donald Trump is the devil. If I vote for Donald Trump, I have to think he's perfect. And I have to think that Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden is the devil. It just doesn't work that way. I need the nuance. I need the juance. I need the complexity. I have no problem. And I've gotten a lot of attacks for, um, for uh, saying thank you to Donald Trump for moving the embassy to Jerusalem, for um, the breakthrough that freed us from the, the tunnel vision of the um, of Oslo and uh, the Iran deal uh, and brought us the Abraham Accords and a little more pressure on Iran. I could go on. The economy, there's a fascinating article yesterday in the New York Times about Donald Trump's vision, which actually started with the whole notion of full employ- employment. And now they didn't give Trump credit, but Biden's people are trying to see how do we have a functioning, flourishing economy with full employment. So I, I, I agree with you on the need for nuance, but in the same way that when people went from protesting police brutality to trashing and looting stores in Manhattan, in Chicago, in, uh, in, in Boston, um, in Atlanta, Minneapolis, in Minneapolis I've, I was getting there. Um, I said, no, you've crossed the line. And, and human beings know when they've crossed the line. So too, when you enter the Capitol, when you bully police, when you're a part of a mob that killed one young 
Iraqi war veteran who actually was a Trump supporter, who also was a Capitol Police officer um, with, with a fire extinguisher. And I think every single person who entered into that building is in a sense, uh, was part of that conspiracy to commit murder. Then you've gone into hooliganism, then you've gone into criminal behavior, and then you've really gone into fake truthism. Because to cross that line, to cross that line from the reverence, which so many of us have left and right, it's one of the things that unites us, of the holiness of the temple of democracy. And again, I'm going back to that religious language. Sure. To somehow be able to cross, and, and, and there's also a nuance in terms of the damage that was done. Yes, there's something also bizarre about it. There was clearly, because many of them had served in the military, many of them were cops, right? So the selfies they're taking is, look, mom, I'm here, right? Idiots, because they're now on social media and they're being hunted down by the FBI and others. Um, and, and, I, and I will say that I think if there had been other mobs that we've seen uh, over the last year, had they entered the Capitol, they might've burned the place down. They didn't burn the place down. They didn't, as I said, disrespect the rotunda. But we also heard that there was defecation in hallways. There was people not, not flushing toilets when they went to the bathrooms. There was damage done to different congressional offices. There were computers stolen. Um, there was graffiti, uh, windows broken, people hurt. And, and every human being ultimately, and this is the core message of America, the core message of democracy, every human being ultimately controls himself or herself. And you can't say I was swept up. It's not a defense. So the tearful cries of the Olympic swimmer who says, I didn't realize what I was doing. And yet he's sitting there in the rotunda. I see that he wasn't one of the people who was, who was bullying. I see he wasn't one of those people. There were people who, there were some people who came in really loaded for bear. There were some people who came in armed. There were some people who came in with gas masks. There were some people who came in with combat all vets, kinds of right. military plans and, right, and, and, and combat vests. Those people are at a whole other level, right? But anyone who crossed that line went from patriotism to fake patriotism. Yeah, and, and I think that over the past couple of days, we, we've really, I mean, every day that goes by, there's another uh, video that's posted online or there's another sort of, uh, um, you know, testament to, to what went on there. And I've, I've heard audio of, of just like the sound of the mob and, you know, here's a cop, let's try to kill him or, you know, yeah. oh. hang Mike Pence and, and all these sorts of things. And uh, actually, the Washington Post has a podcast and I'm going to forget its name right now, but they did an, an hour long uh, episode where they were basically interviewing people from the capital from the Capitol Police and the FBI and different sources that were actually there on the day of of uh, of, of the riot, um, and it is a sobering thing to listen to to just go through and to hear everybody's accounts and to understand from a, basically from a from a, a hour or even half hour to half hour uh, trajectory of of you know in the beginning of the day where they were in terms of the the rally with Trump and then moving on towards. Um, them realizing that they were very, very understaffed in terms of the, 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 the force, uh, the size of the force that they had versus the amount of people that were there. And then the requests to uh, call in troops and the Pentagon officers telling them basically you know, under whose authorization uh, yeah. and not wanting to do it because um, in the beginning, and this was something that I had learned, uh, for the Capitol Police to call up additional forces, it, it's it's because of the location itself. Um, there's there's a certain amount of politics involved with it as well, because the Sergeant at Arms reports to the Speaker of the House and to uh, and 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 to um, the Senate Majority Leader, and they may not want the optics of that sort of a thing taking place there. So so in the beginning, it wasn't fully understood if it was necessary or not. Of course, now we see. Right. with what's going on there today. Again, I mean, 
I don't think in, in my lifetime, and you and I both lived in Washington, D.C., and I interned in the building. I mean, it's, it's, and I'll go back to that in a second to talk about what you were talking about before in terms of the, the Temple of Democracy, but, but to see 25,000 troops and, and, and you see the pictures of, of, of the soldiers yeah. sleeping on the floor in the Capitol, it's like- yeah, Heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and it's, and it's ridiculous. I've, I've never, you know, I, I would never think that I would live to see that. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for, you know, like the, the Secret Service movie starring uh, Jared Butler or, or one of these guys to, uh, yeah. to, you know, to be, to be part of a movie. I, I you have, don't have to see the movie. <laughs> well, I, have, I have to ask you do, you, do you see this? We had a debate at the JPPI where I work um, internally amongst our colleagues. And, and some of the views, you're a historian, so it'd be great to get your historian's perspective on this. Uh, you've covered presidencies also. Do you see this as a defining moment in American politics and history? Do you see this as a pivotal moment? Do you, ha, has anything like this ever happened in American history? Um, how, how do you view it in a, in a historical lens? So I always say that part of the reason why I'm able to sleep well at night is because I'm a historian. <laughs> and I can often put it in, I, I can put these things in context. I say uh, my favorite text as a historian is context. And so let me throw out two moments that can calm us and the big question mark. So the two moments that can calm us are one, 25 years ago, not 250 years ago, 25 years ago, the Oklahoma City bombing. That to me is actually the most powerful analogy in my lifetime of this kind of thing. Um, and, and I think it actually also is a model that President Biden and to be and the and the FBI should follow of they the at that moment when Timothy McVeigh uh, dropped off that um, that uh, the, the explosives the uh, car filled with explosives and killed 167 people, 167 people including over 25 kids in a in a in a in a in a little preschool in preschool. Yep. Um, that was a terrifying moment, and that was a moment that said, "Oh my goodness, it looks like." all these militias are taking over. And if you count the number of militias that were there in 1995 in the United States of America, and that were there in 2001, when Bill Clinton on January 20th peacefully left office, the number had dr dropped dramatically because they were targeted, because they were singled out, because the United States of America has won left to right. And what I call that mainstream silenced majority said no enough. So we already have a model A of terror and B, of a successful fight against that terror, activating the decency, the, that, 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 that core consensus of Americans. And I, I think we also saw a lot of chaos during um, the 1960s when people felt, oh my goodness, and there were attacks on the Capitol, you know, will we ever get back to normal? And then we had mourning in America. So um, I'm not yet ready to pronounce that this is a turning point. Uh, I, I, I could see where it would be if it becomes the model if it becomes the, if it, it creates, you know, when, when people are having mental breakdowns, one of the things that's, that, that it's terrifying is that they get to a certain moment and they harm themselves. Uh, and then you say, oh, they've now created a precedent. They'll always go back to that and start from there and go down. So in democracy, it always da is dangerous that does this now set a precedent for people from the left, for people from the right, the people who are at war, does it reinforce a clear red line? And anyone who thinks they know that should go back with me to 9-11 when everybody was telling me, oh, our lives are never going to be the same. And we very quickly went back to normal, except for, of course, the 3,000 people who died so and their families. So we don't know. That's what we don't know. And then, of course, when you take the lens and go all the way back and you look at the Civil War, <laughs> did 
this doesn't compare. Right. You look at the 1896 election, which where people thought we were going back to the Civil War, 1876, this doesn't compare. You look at the, um, in the early 1800s, when sometimes there was violence in, in, in Congress between members of Congress, uh, this is there, but it doesn't. So now again, it's a unique event because it's we've never had a mob rampaging on the Capitol. And the optics of that are very, very scary and unnerving. Can I ask the challenge, you? The, challenge, the challenge for the American people is to make sure, and this is where I really believe we have agency, is to make sure that this is an anomaly and not a new model. That's our work. Let me ask, though, because you mentioned that this this is not uh, or it's right at the edge of being a turning point. Could it not be considered a turning point in that when you consider the president's role in it? If you if you bring it into the equation and also are there any historical examples in the history of the presidency of a president, uh, if not outright calling for this sort of an action, kind of dancing on the line of. of being we, we, have, we have never had a president who declared war on the process in the way that Donald Trump did in the last three and a half months. And I said three and a half months, not 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 because I don't know how, not my math. When Donald Trump in the first debate as president of the United States was asked if he would respect the electoral outcome and he wouldn't give a clear definitive yes. I remember that. And yeah. he had, right? And he had been president already for four years and hadn't created a commission to fix what he might have thought was broken in the electoral system. That moment said to me that no one, I, I really believe no matter how much you love Donald Trump, no matter how conservative you are, you shouldn't vote for that man out of patriotic motives. Because at that moment, he really, I mean, he'd been crossing lines after lines after lines. But that was really, if I was a historian, was going to start the story of his uh, repudiation of core democratic values and a core democratic decency. I'd, there'd obviously be a prelude that goes back to 2015 or goes back to him and his father. But, but that was a key moment. And then there has never, ever, ever been a president who consistently rejected the voice of the people in this way. There's never been a loser in American history who was such a sore loser, who so refused to, to listen to the, um, to, to the people's call and to the people's voice and so disrespected the people's voice. Are there intelligent people, good people who have serious questions about how the election was handled? No doubt. In every election, are there examples of fraud and, 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 and distortions, no doubt. When the, to me, when the gap is 7 million and in so many different states, and it's not like the year 2000 when it really was close, I think you have to at a certain point stop and listen to the people. Um, I'm very happy that on that awful day, January 6th, Mike Pence had already made it clear he was gonna respect the will of the people and the process. Yeah. I'm very happy that moments before the Capitol was invaded, Mitch McConnell had given really what I think is the speech of his life, saying if we reject the people's will, democracy risks going into a death spiral. And the fact that both those men who had been pouring flame, had been pouring fuel in the flames, had been flamethrowers, had been, had been a part of this, realized, no, I've now reached the outer limits. First of all, it shows Donald Trump's great failure that day, because he didn't. And Donald Trump's other great crime that day to me against American history and against American decency and against American process was, uh, Senator Ben Sass, who's a Republican, reports from somebody within the White House that when the Capitol had been breached already and White House aides are telling Trump, begging him to come out with a statement, not only did he delay making a statement, that's the public failure, but privately he was watching on television and the quotas was excited by it. 
And the quote was that he enjoyed seeing the chaos in television. That is not a leader. And that is someone who actually deserves impeachment and deserves conviction and deserves never to ever run for an office uh, of the United States of America, including dog catcher ever again, because that crosses too many lines. And that is a fake dream. That's a, that's a really um, clear and powerful statement um, that you're making. And I was thinking about this because, you, you know, th- there are two elements at play here um, and you could take this either way. So one, you could say, look, there are clearly deep divisions in, in America right now, clearly deep divisions. And, and, and we'll, we'll jump in and say hello to our friend, uh, Leo Sinai, who's listening. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring in his question. How, how did we get to this point basically? Um, but before we do, let me see if I can kind of kind of think this one out. There is one school of thought that said what Trump Trump as an individual did and what you just explained. And I didn't even realize the the level of detail of him watching it and, and kind of just enjoying the anarchy of, of basically watching, you know, if he can't live there for another four years, let the house burn down. Trash, right. Right. Um, on the other hand, there are clearly many Americans um, just after these events, he's still enjoying very high, um, popularity ratings. I think I saw 40% was in a poll uh, uh, after that. So if he's still, you know, there and people you talk to, um, Trump supporters, I, very few people, I think nobody's supporting the actual breaking of the Congress. Nobody supports the violence, but people think the election was stolen. There, there are deep divisions in America. You know, it's one of these things with conspiracy theorists um, that you can't argue with them because proof of the conspiracy is is proof of it. And lack of proof is also proof of it, right? Right, because it's so good at covering up. Right. right. And and so this is why you can never make any, you know, there's there's a certain level um, where you have to trust the system and you have to trust that the system is robust enough and that there are enough checks and balances. And, and you know, I'm kind of thinking about this as I go. Um, I, I don't think a lot of these conspiracy theorists spent time in government just to, to know how chaotic bureaucracies are, especially large bureaucracies, especially across states. It's really hard for me to imagine, uh, but this is why I'm not a conspiracy theorist, that, that there was a major conspiracy for election fraud. And like you said, a gap of 7 million is really hard to cover up, um, is really hard to cover up. But uh, on the one hand, what he did, you're saying, is so egregious that he deserves to be impeached, never allowed to hold any public office again. On the other hand, might I suggest, uh, might I offer that impeaching him will make it very hard for the healing of American society with not a fringe. I'm not talking about the fringe who wore, you know, who are waving Confederate flags and, and wearing Auschwitz T-shirts. I'm talking about 40 million who continue to support Trump, who continue to claim the elections were stolen, who continue to think um, that that their America is being stolen from them. Does impeachment symbolically push that group further away from healing from what America needs right now. And that's trying to find a way to come together around a common narrative. I initially hesitated to support impeachment precisely because of that. And I was also extremely uncomfortable with the language that the Democrat, the Democrats in Congress chose, which was the language of insurrection and incitement to insurrection. I also don't like the fact that, you know, Donald Trump gave a speech, which I found abhorrent, which I found despicable, but I think it's protected free speech. So uh, I'll give you my nuanced answer to the impeachment in a second, but first let me let me throw out three other things. Please. One, um, I'm with you on conspiracy, uh, and I have what I call the slob theory of history. When people tell me about the conspiracy to let Pearl Harbor be bombed, or to have John F. Kennedy assassinated, or 9/11, or now the Capitol Police collaborating with the thing, I say, at any given moment, 
there's chaos in the universe and there are slobs at work. And at any given moment, if we take all our historical hindsight and we take all our governmental power and we put a big magnifying glass on it, we're gonna find this guy's taking a smoke at the wrong time. This woman is, is talking to her kids. Um, these two are having an argument and they're not doing their jobs, right? Not only in government, but everywhere. Sure. And what the conspiracy theorist does is they zero in on all those anomalies and create, you're right, a perfect system where anything that's uh, that's unclear, well, secret, and anything that's that that, that that's that's somehow coincidental uh, becomes part of a plan. Mm -hmm. So one is remember the slob theory of history. Um, the, the the second thing is that uh, th there is a big question which we should get to for, for of my uh, friend and and a, and a tremendous colleague Leo Sinai about how we got here, and um, and what we can do about it. Uh, but let's let's put that aside because that's that's a more complicated uh, thing. And so three, on impeachment. Again, I was uncomfortable with the language. I'm uncomfortable with the incitement talk. I'm uncomfortable with the insurrection talk. But I felt that Trump so crossed the line. I felt that this act was so egregious. And of course, we saw and and, and he's leaving anyway, right? right? So one is there are some teeth because never being able to run again is a punishment. And it also means that he's going to get ignored. And the greatest punishment to a narcissist is not just to, to make, tell him he's a loser, but to be, to be an ignored loser, forgotten yesterday's garbage taken out. But here's my nuance. If I were a member of Congress, I would have voted to impeach. If I were a member of the Senate, I would vote to convict and be one of the 51 to vote to say that he should never, uh, he should never run again, but, or hold office again. But I urged, um, in, in an op-ed that has not yet been accepted, but hopefully will be accepted in the next couple of days, Joe Biden, as one of his first presidential acts, to pardon Donald Trump. Because I'm with you. Mm. I'm saying, how do we reach out? And how does he reach out to the 30 million, the 40 million? I, th there's also this big lie that's going on about the 75 million, right? It is a lie for Joe Biden to get up and talk about the 81 or 82 million. People, the millions of people voted for Joe Biden that day with hundred or a thousand different rationales. Sure. 75 million people voted for Donald Trump with a hundred or thousand or 10,000. It's the demagogue's lie. It's the demagogue's trick. And it's been yeah. echoed by so many people to say, oh, thus 75 million as if they spoke as one, right? There are all kinds of people who held their nose and sure. voted for Trump because they felt that he was better for Israel on this call. There are some all kinds of people who held their nose and voted for Trump because their stock market, their, 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 their stocks were booming in the market. Was going. There are all kinds of reasons Absolutely. or because they said, Joe Biden is senile or Joe Biden is weak or Joe Biden is is too centrist and not left wing enough. So I'm going to go to Trump. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons. So let's break that down. But why pardon? Because if Joe Biden is really going to, as he says, restore the soul of America, if he's really going to be a healer, he also has to listen. And Hillary Clinton and her uh, memoir about why she lost, which is brilliantly called What Happened, because it shows how clueless she was. She said, "You lost I that." Didn't I didn't realize because how could it, how dare it happen is what she's really saying, right? <laughs> she said, "I didn't realize how much anger there was out there." And I said, "That means you weren't listening. You weren't there." Yeah. Joe Biden has to hear the anger, has to hear the American carnage. To go back to Donald Trump's ugly inaugural speech, and lean into it and embrace it. And I can't think of anything that, first of all, will really infuriate tens of millions of Democrats and give him his sister soldier moment to show, hey, you know what? I'm in charge, I'm the boss. I'm the one who won because I ran for the center, not for the far left. I'm not woke and I don't wanna be woke. Um, and, and don't try to hijack 
my victory for your agenda, which is illiberal liberals. If we have unpatriotic patriots on the far right, we have illiberal liberals on the left-hand side. I, I hope you're writing all these down for future articles. Um, yeah. So here's the key, <laughs> I hope, I hope you... is that I was really thinking, right. it really started exactly with your, the beauty of your question, right? You really asked a very powerful and profound question as a patriot. How do we go forward? And, and, and thinking backwards, I thought there could be no more dramatic move. I, would, I, I love it at the inauguration, but if not within the, next, the first week or two, as a gesture to the American people who did vote for Donald Trump, who are in pain, to pardon him. And of course, when you pardon, it's a federal pardon, so there still could be a New York City and state tax uh, initiative. When you pardon, you, you, in, in, a set, you essen, in essence accept a certain kind of culpability. Um, but when you pardon, you also evoke Gerald Ford, who pardoned Richard Nixon, yeah. paid the price for it in 1976 when Jimmy Carter beat him just by a hair and lived long enough into his 90s to be vindicated and from people like Ted Kennedy to give him the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award to thank Gerald Ford for uniting America. And so I would say to Joe Biden, heal America by pardoning. So, so, you're, so saying, you're, you're saying impeach, convict, impeach, and then convict, pardon. And pardon. Send because it goes, it goes back to what you said at the beginning and the beauty of the good work you do. Uh, and I've been admiring it for many years and, and, and it's beautiful and nuanced. Nuance, complexity, confuse people, break out of that all or nothingness. Absolutely. Break out of that 100%edness. Break out of that America right or wrong, Democrats right or wrong, uh, Republicans right or wrong. Confuse people. And I actually think the confusion, if done right, won't be seen as doddering, won't be seen as weakness, but will be seen as true strength. And if not, the hell with them. The guy should only run uh, once and shouldn't run for election because that also would be a healing move, but then he would make himself a lame duck. I'm, I'm just going to take what you said and brand it. We need to create a muscular majority. A muscular... A muscular or, moderate. A muscular Mus moderate. Yeah, that's, that's right. what it's about. A muscular moderate. moderate majority. We could do that, that the MMM. <laughs> do you think that... I mean, look, Dan and I, uh, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not old enough to have remembered a similarly polarizing time in American history. Uh, you, you are. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> not, not to, no, but, but, but for real, I'm not, I'm not trying to I'm make a, a, a jab at, at your age. I, <laughs> yeah. This is, I was listening to something on the, on the way over here and they were talking about this, you know, the, the, the long, uh, the long scope of history and how, you know, if you compare what we're going through now, uh, you know, it's nothing compared to, you know, the, the Visigoth siege Rome or, or World War II, <laughs> things like this. And it's like, well, you, know, you should go you, back to the schism of Abraham smashing idols. Why don't sure. you? <laughs> but, 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 but what this person was saying was, you know, your worst moment is your worst moment. You know, you, right. you only know as bad as it's been for you. And if this is as bad as it's been for us in terms of our political memory and, and, and understanding America, this is as bad as it's been. Um, you know, hearing some something like what you just said, I, I agree with you. You know, Biden, you know he, he they should impeach, convict and Biden should should take it as his moment to, to send a simple pardon. But considering where the body politic is right now in the United States, polarization, the, 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 the echo chambers that people live in, their inability to see the bigger picture, their inability to see their neighbor's desires, uh, you know, regardless of- I think there's a lot are. of anger right now. There's and, a and lot the, of emotion. And the anger. Do you think that it is such a, to, 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 for him to do so would be such a toxic move uh, considering the country's attitudes towards towards Donald Trump and, and their perception of, of his uh, culpability in, in, in what transpired at the Capitol. 
versus, let's say, Nixon's role in Watergate. Uh, and, 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 you know, th those were awful crimes, but, you know, it's, it's difficult to compare one, one to the other. Uh, do you think that he could, could see that or would he be swept up in the politics of the moment? Uh, you know, with your understanding of Joe Biden and as the person. I, I mean, this would be the real test of his mettle. I mean, I think he has it within him. I think he definitely has a desire. I mean, if, if you look at the, his language from the moment he started running, uh, he has a desire to restore the, sto the soul of the nation. He understands, he, you know, he will, he, he's old enough to remember both the backlash against Gerald Ford and the 25 years it took for people to say, huh, maybe you had a point. Right, and that's the and, and that's the advantage of having somebody who's a little bit older um, in, in office. Uh, you know, there's there's a marvelous story of Brian Mulroney, who was in his late 40s, early 50s when he was Prime Minister of Canada and was serving at the same time that Ronald Reagan, who was in his late 70s, was uh, was was serving as President of the United States. And I heard this at the Reagan Library um, at a retrospective. And Brian Mulroney got up and he said, "The best thing I learned from Ronald Reagan." was not to be so thin-skinned and not to be so reactive. He said, I was still kind of trying to prove myself when I was prime minister. And so anytime I was attacked in the media, I got very upset, I took it personally. He said, Ronald Reagan was a man in his seventies. He was already who he was. And, and he, didn't, he didn't have that same need to justify himself. And, and I thought that was a real thoughtful uh, homage to a mature leader and to the maturity that often does come with age. Uh, so indeed age also lets you know that you know, in the 1960s, uh, the 1968 Chicago riots, the Democratic Convention, um, the the riots that were not only then but in you know the the, the Watts riots, the the riots that were going on in the streets of of of, uh, of Harlem, of Newark, of Cleveland in 64, 65, 66, the great divisions over civil rights, um, the Boston busing uh, crisis of the 1970s. We as Americans have been through a lot. Um, you know, let alone you go back to Civil War and and, and other moments. The 1930s the deep, ugly divisions over whether we enter into World War II or not. Yeah. But three keys that are really problematic, and this is touching on our friend Lior Sinai's question. Number one, we're living in what some analysts call the age of the big sort. When we talk about red and blue America, it's not really red states, blue states. That's the maps, maps we use. But go online and look at the ones that really look at residential patterns. And you see it's, it's city versus country. It's now cities and suburbs versus countries. Once upon a time, my neighbor might be someone who created a different church, who, who, who culturally was different than I was, and who politically might vote in a different, for a different party. And we might yell and scream about that, but we would send our kids to Little League together. We would mow our lawns together. Unfortunately, the big sort says that increasingly we live, worship or not worship, um, vote, eat, right? And now, mask ourselves with one tribe or another tribe, right? How did masking become politicized? How did that become a mark of virtue or a mark of evil? How did that become, how did this, the, the, you know, this, um, this pandemic should have united us, right? It should unite us with everybody around the world because we're all human and it should unite us as Americans and as Israelis and, and because I'll have to kind of hunker down at home. And the fact that things have become so polarized in the realities that we live in is partially due to the big sort. Second, as you said, it's partially due to the tunnel vision that occurs from social media where they get into your heads, the logarithms, feed me, feed me, feed me, left, 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 right, 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 conspiracy, 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 um, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, whatever it is. And so 
I don't have that wonderful experience of opening up, I know this is a napkin, but uh, opening up the newspaper is my sushi rahabia napkin. napkin. Um, uh, opening, up, <laughs> opening up a newspaper and reading the article I wanted to and having my eye catch something I didn't expect to. Maybe I'm reading about domestic policy and now I wanna read about foreign policy. Maybe I'm reading something from the left and I read something about it from the right. No, the, what, what Google does to me, what all these logarithms do is they pull me deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of the one thing, the two things, the three things that are gonna get me to click more. And yeah. so that is yeah. really, that's bringing us back to what we called in the 1800s, the early 1800s, the dark age, or we talk about the early 1800s, the dark ages of partisan journalism. The dark ages of partisan journalism is when, when what they called Democratic Republicans at the time, what became the Democrats, only read Democratic newspapers and only read about how holy and wonderful the Democratic leaders were like Thomas Jefferson and how evil somebody like John Adams was. And the Federalists only read about how evil Democratic Republicans like Thomas Jefferson was and how wonderful uh, John Adams was. What happened? Short history lesson. The invention of the telegraph created things like the Associated Press created newspapers that wanted to um, go to, to, to left to, to, to um, pedal left and right. So what did you do? You had to strip things down because the telegraph, who, what, where, when, why. You had to write shorter objective articles so that people from left and right would, would read. And all of a sudden you started having objective journalism, which created some forms of consensus. So one is we have the big sort. Two is we have the dark ages of partisan social media and hyper-partisan social media and also a media that shames, a media that's personal, a media that bullies, a media that cancels left and right. And the third dimension is leadership. Think for example of how efficient America looked despite the great failure of 9-11 on 9-12 or 9-15 or October or when George W. Bush reached out to Americans, reached out to Arab Americans to say, we're not gonna, we're not gonna start uh, blaming you, we're not going to start beating on you. We're going to, we're going, we're going to be Americans. We're going to have our values. The leadership that came from George W. Bush, who happened to be a Republican, and the negative leadership, the demagogic leadership that came for Donald Trump, who happened to be—he's truly a Republican in name only, um, a rhino. The contrast is stunning. Leadership counts. Character counts. What I call the invisible presidency—not the formal office powers, but the the informal touches matter. I, I'm sorry I, to go on for so long, but that was... No, 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 no it's, it's great. Um, and, and it's it's wonderful to hear you. I'm glad you jumped into the, the role of social media and how it's kind of led to this. Um, and, and, in a, and you even took it back before social media, because I, I think there's something certainly in human nature, but but in American nature, in the way American society is built, that, that um, it, what did uh, somebody I spoke to recently said, it... it incentivizes radicals and not moderates um, within the American political system. Um, and if we take it to to where social media is today, and I've written about this and we've spoken about this on the show. Um, yeah. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of this, or even if they are aware of it, they still let social media do this to them. They social media, the way the Google and Facebook and Twitter algorithms work is that they, uh, you know, if people aren't aware of this, it, it sees what you're into and then backs up more of that. And, and what we have is a, uh, it was supposed to be maybe a democratization, but uh, maybe a hyper curation, hyper individualization of society. So I, you know, I always like to go back to, to the point of, you know, people used to watch the NBC nightly news uh, or CNN or, or um, you know, 
what we call in Hebrew, right? People would sit and watch the nightly news and they would get a similar picture of what happened in the world. Now, maybe it was biased, maybe it was slanted. I'm sure it was biased, but at least everyone was kind of biased in the same direction. You saw the same facts, you know, like you said, with the telegram, you saw the same facts, who, what, where, when, why, and, and then form your own opinions from there. And, and what's happened, and it's stunning because it happened for commercial interests of the, of the big tech firms. Um, you know, trying to, to monetize on our attention, basically. What, what's, there's kind of like a famous meme going around that if you don't have to pay for a product, um, then you are the, you are the what, what, what's that, that meme going around? It's like, I haven't seen it. If you don't, if something uh, is free, then you're the product. Then you're right? the product. I see, very clever. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you're not paying for Facebook and you're oh, not yeah, paying yeah, for yeah. Twitter, you're the commodity. You're the thing that's being traded. You're the thing that they're making money off of. And it's true. And what they've done is, is um, it reinforces your worldview. And, and, and I think in, in kind of a crazy time when there's so much information coming from, from all different directions, people, as Stephen Simmons said, you are the product. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Um, it, you know, at a time like this, you are drawn to what comforts you. So the worldview that comforts you, right? So like you said, if you're a Black Lives Matter person and then all you're seeing is Black Lives Matter, then, then you're just going to get more and more into that world and vice versa. If you're into the conspiracy theorist world or, or whatever, then you're going to get more and more into that. And that's kind of about the time during the Black Lives Matter protest when we started this podcast, kind of uh, as, as an attempt to try to combat, um, to, to try to fight that, that, that all or nothing take on this. Um, and, and it's just stunning what, what in such a short period of time that we've all been living in this social media world where fewer and fewer people are watching you know, the NBC or CBS or whatever nightly news, um, it, it seems like uh, maybe the, just the vocal people don't try to reach out to multiple kinds of sources of information and analysis um, to try to get a balanced view of things. And then you get these kind of divisions. Um, you know, do, do you think someone like Trump recognized this at least instinctively? Because I don't know how much he reads. Do you think he recognized it instinctively and just played on it for his own whims? Do you think he's a product of this? Do you think he he brought this about, um, inflamed it with his kind of personality and with his with his tactics? Uh, what do you think is his role in all this? And then maybe kind of let's jump into these deeper divides of where America is now socially. So before I answer your Trump question, you you kind of inspired me, which I've never thought about it in this way, um, that the death of the w, of WC has destroyed the WC and sent us all into the WC. What do I mean? The death of Walter Cronkite. Walter, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite, which you spell with a C, right? Yeah. right was, was exactly what you're talking about. He was the voice of America in the 1960s when he finally said, there's something wrong with the Vietnam War. Well, Lyndon Johnson said, I've lost the American people. It was that consensus culture that you're talking about. CBS, NBC, ABC, the three news networks, and, and a kind of shared notion of at least, we, we're, we're standing around the electronic fire hearth, um, the television set, getting the same agenda. And then we'll argue about our reactions, but still there are certain things we have in common. And he represented the American consensus, the first WC. So the death of WC of Walter Cronkite led to the destruction of the water cooler. What's the water cooler? You that metaphoric yeah. thing in the, in the office where, first of all, you're not just at home Zooming, right? Uh, and you're not just speaking to the people with whom you agree, but you're in the water cooler, you're, you're getting your break, right? And so you might talk to the janitor. You know, all my fancy pants friends who are so liberal never break out of their class. They, one of the beautiful things about living in Israel is we have cross-class interactions on a daily basis in our schools, in our, in our synagogues, 
um, on the street in a way that most of my friends who are, who are convinced that we're all right-wing nutheads just by living here uh, can't even imagine. It's true. So, so the water cooler, which was a, a democratizing uh, phenomenon, which was an equalizing phenomenon, has been destroyed. And so it sent us all into the WC, which is the water closet, which is, you know, <laughs> my mother would say the bathroom. So uh, the death of WC led to the destruction of the WC and has sent us all into the WC. <laughs> I think Donald Trump understood that. I, I can't blame, right? I mean, the, the person who lacks the historical context just goes, oh, it's Trump, 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 Trump. Let's go back to 2015. Let's go back to 2010. Let's go back to 2000. Let's go back to 1919. I've, I've written books about every single one of these presidents um, since uh, Ronald Reagan. You speak to people from the Reagan era, they go, nobody attacked us. No, no president has been attacked like we were attacked. And why do they attack us so much? Because we were conservative, right? And then you go to, I'm jumping a little bit to Bill Clinton. They say, you can't imagine how we were attacked. Nobody's ever attacked a president like Bill Clinton. And nobody's ever attacked it like they attacked us. Why? Either because he was a baby boomer or because he was a southerner or because he was a liberal. And certainly when you get to uh, George W. Bush, nobody ever attacked us so much. It was terrible, blah, 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 um, because he was a southerner or a conservative. Obama, because he was an African-American. Donald Trump is not a genius by any stretch of the imagination. He's not a reader. He's not a thinker, but he has the salesman instinct. He has stayed around as the I hate to use the word great, but the great American celebrity, the classic American celebrity of his generation, constantly commanding attention, constantly branding his, 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 his name and, and, and branding buildings and branding things and, and convincing tens of millions of people that he represents quality by having that salesman goods gut. And he understood in a very profound way, in a very ugly way, that he didn't have to be president of the United States of America. He only had to be president of the Trump voters of America. And he almost pulled it off and got a second term. His poll ratings until these last two, three weeks, I'm happy to say, have been more consistent than Ronald Reagan's or Bill Clinton's, than George W. Bush's or Barack Obama's, which went up and down. Because he was playing to the same 42% again and again and again, because he understood how deeply divided we were. He understood the anger. But his failure, his moral failure, is he didn't try to be president of these United States, of the United States, of the American people. He just tried to be president of Trumpville. Right, and you can and see that, that. That's inexcusable. And you could see that in, in, you know, as we say, proof is in the pudding. I mean, he, he, you could see that he didn't try to be the president of the United States during during the biggest crisis of his of his term. Right, and I was waiting for it. I was, we were I, all I, waiting you know, for I kept it. waiting for it, and I kept saying, too, right? this is his moment. He I could, kept saying he's crass. I kept saying... Okay, he's he's not you know diplomatic. He speaks his mind. Okay, okay, okay. You know, I kept kind of waiting. From all right, you won the election, dude. You won the election. Right. Be presidential now. Be a president of America. Be the leader of the free world. Never happened. Uh, and and I and I think you know uh, again, I try to leave my own politics out of the show, but I'll, I'll be very blunt here. I was one of the people that kind of just held my nose and said, okay, he was elected. Now let's take what we can you know get. He's good for Israel. He's he's good for this. He's bad on this. And and you know let's hope for for something better. Uh, next time around, I'm sure I'll uh, piss off a lot of my uh, more conservative Trump uh, supporting friends, which which there are many of, uh, if they're listening to this. Um, you know, I, I kind of I kind of always throughout this entire thing that it's been difficult not to parallel uh, the Trump uh, presidency with Netanyahu's um, multiple administrations here. And, and yet I, I will say to Netanyahu's credit, I think he, who who is very well read and who's 
extremely intelligent. Yes. yes. Uh, unlike unlike Trump, and I agree. I, I like the way you framed it. He 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 has that very much that salesman kind of celebrity instinct. I think he's very instinctual, and clearly, um, you know, it, it served his purposes here. Um, Netanyahu, on the other hand, seems to know when to dance back and forth between being the prime minister of his voters versus being the prime minister of the country, and he seems to constantly be going back and forth between the two. So it's a lot harder. To, to make that same generalization about Netanyahu. I, I mean, I can't wait to read the books that'll be written about him, you know, once he's uh, retired from uh, office. I think, I think a big part of that obviously has to do with the context of which the prime minister of Israel and Netanyahu find himself in. And that, and you talked about this in, in previous episodes, that we are a part of a, a society or a part of a people that has a certain cohesion to us. We come together during times of crisis and, yeah. and he professes at all times to be the prime minister, not only of Israel, but the leader of the Jewish people. And he says this, and it's difficult to, you know, going on what, on what Gil said, uh, you know, if Trump uh, was the president of his voters, it would be difficult for Bibi to hold the line as the president or the prime minister, excuse me, of the Jewish people and only handed towards his, his base at all times. It's, he well, does I, see, I also, I also as he's well motives are a lot more complex. He sees the arc of history. He sees right. himself, you know, in some sort of a, a role where his job is to, is to save the Jewish people from danger and from, you know, if we're looking at things such as Iran or, or perhaps even now with COVID and, and his right. approach to things um, and say what you want about their prime minister, but, but he's definitely in. in oh, he sees himself in historical. Yeah. For sure. Let, let me use that actually um, to, to kind of frame the next question for you, Gil. Um, you know, Benny mentioned that we talk about Israel having a natural cohesion because, because it's the Jewish state, because 80% of the country is Jewish, at least socially, um, if not ethnically or religiously. Um, and so that gives us something that, that America doesn't have. America is a unique experiment in that it is, it is a country not based on an ethno-national base, right? If we're talking about Europe, if we're talking about Asia, if we're talking about, you know, um, um, th throughout Africa, really. But it's based on an idea, and the idea of democracy and the, the idea of, of um, I mean, you talked about, about kind of democracy and citizenship in religious terms, I think it's a place where the, the public religion is democracy and, and civic involvement. Um, and yet you've all, and it's, you know, we talked about this earlier on the show. It's always been a place that has um, placed maybe the individual ahead of the collective. And you need extreme times of, of conflict, of tension, of chaos, war, right, to bring the people together. How does America, how has it in the past and how does it now going forward, <clears throat> excuse me, bridge that natural tension that it has where in, in you know, in, in the one place, it doesn't have that natural bridge. Now you're having maybe conflicting ideas about what it means to be America. So that American religion, I think, is there, but some people are taking it in one direction. Other people are taking it in a very different direction. So there's not even agreeing on on what that essence of what it means to be American, that American religion that you spoke of. Um, and, and, you know, kind of on the one hand, you have, you have a place where I, I, I think still today as an individual, we talked about that individualism, right, of social media and, and, and kind of that individualist American ethos. It's the place where individuals can succeed maybe to heights greater than anywhere else in the world, but they can also fall to, to lows lower than anywhere in the developed world. How does America go forward? How does America create that uniting factor that it needs? Can it? Can it? You know, you hear a lot of people saying America's in decline. We're, we're seeing American decline right now. 
Um, is American decline, can it rebound? How does it rebound? And what does it do in place of that common ethno-religious, in, in lack of that common ethno-religious uniting factor and, and where the people are seem to be split between the idea of what it means to be an American? Before I get to the very good question, I just want to go back to this Trump baby thing, if I can, just for one line, which is that um, Donald Trump doesn't know any better, and that's his great failing. BB does know better, and that's his great failing. Mm. And 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 when BB plays the Donald Trump card, and he and he manipulates, and he demagogues, and he divides, um, and he's doing it very consciously. We've seen with the desecration of Capitol Hill where it can go. We've seen with two and a half months of yelling and screaming about fake news and fake elections by the fake triots, where it can go. And, and he, sh he should know better. And that's my big problem with Bibi Netanyahu. I agree with you. I sleep well at night. I have two kids in the army right now. Um, I sleep well at night knowing that he's in command. I sleep well at night knowing that tomorrow I'm going to get my second vaccination uh, because they had extras one night and we got a WhatsApp and went not stealing from anybody else, but helping make sure that they weren't trashed. Sure. Um, I sleep well at night knowing that he still does feel a, a commitment to Israel and the Jewish people and, and a sense of collective that Donald Trump doesn't. But I also am furious at him because he knows better and he could still do what he did without having to be so demagogic and so divisive. And he will leave a country not as strong as he could have had he also had he also reflected and on and on, on, on the inability of Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher and others to retire gracefully. And he had learned just a lovely, beautiful phrase in the English language, term limits. Now to go to your very complex and important question about what makes America, America and, and where can it go from here? First of all, I, I agree with you. One of the way I, I, I summarize it is by saying that I feel like in Israel, you always need to learn a little more about American individualism from civil liberties to that entrepreneurial spirit. But America always needs to learn a little bit more from Israel about collective, about that sense of community, that sense of cohesiveness, which I think used to operate with all its imperfections in the 1950s and 1960s and has been lost. Um, I also talk about, I don't know if you remember from um, physics, you had a centrifuge, right? So the, 20, the 20th century, let alone the 21st century has become a centrifugal civilization and America has created a centrifugal civilization where we spin out to all our little corners culturally, right? And we indulge ourselves. Um, we indulge our sexual identities. We indulge our religious identities. We indulge all kinds of identities. And you see it on a college campus and how do you build a sense of oneness? Israel, partially because of the neighborhood, partially because of the sense of Jewish peoplehood and partially, by the way, one of the beautiful things we're seeing right now is the role of Israeli Arabs post-COVID is gonna be very, very different because many Israelis on the street are recognizing, you know who was my nurse? It was a male Israeli Arab nurse. You know what I called him? A nurse. I called him just a normal person, right? The pharmacists, the doctors, the nurses of Israel are disproportionately, beautifully Arabs. And there's a rising Israeli Arab middle class. And there was that beautiful picture that went around the internet during the first seger, the first closure, of um, a Magen David Adom and an Israeli Red Cross vehicle that was stopped for prayer. And you had one Muslim and one Jew come out 
and one prayed toward Mecca, one prayed toward Jerusalem, one went on his uh, on his knees. One, uh, it was gorgeous. I remember right? that. Yeah. And there's and there's been so much of that. And what who who passed that on to me? Thirty million other people. I mean, not thirty, you know, but but so many other people because we're proud of that. So how does America get, get, bring it back? Well, our traditional way we have two different we have two different ways we do it. One is when we're attacked, nine <laughs> eleven, uh, Pearl Harbor, um, <laughs> Fort Sumter. Uh, the divisions in society get pushed, get put aside when we're attacked. The unfortunate thing, and I agree with you, Donald Trump could have won re-election if he had seen COVID as an attack like that and had had had, modif had, 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 had modified his game to respond to a national emergency. So one of it is when the, when the enemy from without comes. But we now have this problem with the enemy from within. And one, one other way we've done it the complete opposite, not through military power, not through might, not through muscles, but with words. Franklin Roosevelt, the four freedoms, freedom of worship everywhere in the world, freedom of speech everywhere in the world, freedom from want everywhere in the world, freedom from fear everywhere in the world. And Norman Rockwell, I'm going to give you a little visual because you can see how important it is to me, um, makes it the beautiful pictures, the four freedoms, right? And it becomes iconic. And that helps unite a divided American society after Pearl Harbor. Even after Pearl Harbor, there still were questions about why are we fighting and who are we? And, um, and, and, and so words, pictures, ideas, it goes back to me saying America's an idea. Ronald Reagan comes in and yes, he calls the evil empire, the evil empire, the Soviet Union, but he also talks about mourning in America. He talks about the shining city upon the hill. Peace, prosperity, and the third P, patriotism. Bill Clinton comes in, and despite his moral failures, and despite the divisions that we start seeing growing in the society, he also, with prosperity, is able to help us see that you can have a, bu a budget that's balanced, and succeeds in, and I know this is politically incorrect, with a crime bill and a welfare bill, which trigger warning, was supported by the Black Caucus, was supported by African-Americans in the grassroots, was supported by polls of, of, Amer of African-Americans who saw a need. They saw who are the greatest victims when the spikes of crime in America, African-Americans and the poor, yeah. right? And who were most suffering from a welfare state that didn't give them the, 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 the respect, um, the possibility of a job? Disproportionately African-Americans. And so these two symbols of what have become, what has become to the woke left, these violations by the Clintons of, of basic civil rights and basic human decency were actually very successful, moderate centrist programs. So I'm not willing to give up on the American idea. I've seen the cycles, the, up, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, you need leadership and, um, and, and you need luck because um, the luck comes from having the economy power up. I, I, I'm not a sophisticated economist, but I know that you know, when the economy goes down, the president is a failure. And when the economy goes up, the president suddenly is a genius. The president can have some impact. I don't want to oversimplify, but a lot of it is where you are at the cycle. Um, right. I think yeah. President Biden is poised in his second and third year to have a boom because we'll finally be out of this corona craziness. And I think people are going to want to go back to, to, to normal. And so if he can attach to that boom, Beautiful words, healing gestures, 
a sense that not every action by the Democrats goes to the far, far left and goes to partisanship and goes to vengeance, then he will succeed. And that, let me just say one last thing about vengeance. Vengeance poisons the common well. It doesn't help in, in, in democracy. It goes back to your question about impeachment and my point about pardon, right? That what's the, what's the, what, what's the danger here? The danger is that by being so furious at Donald Trump, and he deserves, you hear, I have fury in my voice. But if I go to vengeance against anybody who ever supported Donald Trump, or even anybody who ever supported his idiotic claim that he, that he won when I don't believe he did win, how do we rebuild as a society? And the other thing I wanna say is history. One of the worst things that happened in the Donald Trump years was the 1619 Project, which isn't Donald Trump's fault. One of the worst things that happened to us who were critics of the 1619 Project is that Donald Trump started criticizing the 1619 Project and then we looked like right-wing maniacs. What is the 1619 Project? Yeah, please. That initiative by the, by the New York Times. Not to tell the story of America through 1776, not to tell the story of America through the four freedoms and mourning in America and, 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 and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan, but through that awful moment in American history, which is an awful moment, when the first slave ship arrived in Jamestown in 1619. And it was an awful moment, but you cannot define America only through race, only through the racial lens, because then you don't understand how Thomas Jefferson was also able to write these gorgeous words about all men are created equal and how that word men expanded to include from white men to black men, from men to men and women. Right. You don't understand all the amazing things that America has done. Why would people from the left trash the ideals that have been used to expand American freedom, expand American rights, expand American prosperity, expand and improve the, 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 the quality of life of African-Americans, of Hispanic-Americans, of women, of gays? Why trash those ideals? for some kind of political cause. It's a short-term gain and a long-term loss. And that's a problem with the left. That's, that's a really powerful uh, way to explain it. And, and, you know, watching, Benny and I have both been here for, for 16, 17 years now, right? So, so when we left America, um, the, the kind of woke left movement was just starting. Uh, and nobody, nobody would call it woke. It was the no, no, it, but, it was, but it was just starting. Like it was its infancy. What, what we see today on the college campuses and beyond, and in, in the BLM movement and the cancel culture, it was just starting. And and we came here, and thankfully Israel is uh, not completely immune to it, but far more immune to it than, than the United States is. And, and you know the way you said it, I think it, it you know it's one of the reasons for for this outrage of. Of the of the right, we'll call it the reactionary right, and and, and it seems to be look, it's got its place. Um, I don't think today you can talk about America without talking about the history of slavery, etc. Uh, you know, and and um, oppressed and repressed uh, minority groups and women, etc. But to be, yeah, I also don't understand why. I mean, maybe it goes back to to a civic religion or people looking for for some kind of religious fervor. Why do people? Um, and I know people who do this and I have, and I have friends on Facebook and I, and I make sure to read their posts as much as it infuriates me. Um, why do people want to define, to, to reject all the good, even the flawed good that came out of America? You said Thomas Jefferson and these ideas because the founding of America, even up till recently, even today had many flaws because it's an idea, right? It's a construct. That's an idea and, 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 its, and its implementation was nowhere near perfect and it, it was gradual and still gradual and they're still going to it. But there's this desire 
to reject everything, to start anew, to, uh, you know, to beat one's chest and, and, and claim, you know, uh, check your white privilege and, and, and all people. And I see where, where this reaction comes from that, that I think brought Trump to power, because I think that's what he played on to, to say, um, on, on the other hand, you know, so then you get two, two Americas, you get one that's completely perfect and always has been, and you get an America that's completely sinful and always has been right. And, and where's that America that is that complex creature that you described that that's the one that really exists because that's how history works. It's like, we talk about these, we can talk about the Israeli founding narrative. You know, you have people who want to say everything was perfect and we did everything legally right. and, and with complete moral justification. You have the other ones. Israel is completely born out of sin and has no justification for leaving for, for living. And, and the truth is that there was a very complex founding in a certain period of time in our history. And you have to engage with it as difficult as it is. Right. Um, how far back do you think that kind of that impulse to, you know, the slave ship? What did you call it, the 1619? 1619, 1619, 1619 project. Yeah. How far back, and and where are the roots? Where does this take us? Where does this impulse in America take us? The story of African Americans is a is a painful, complicated story. It's a story of anguish. It's a story of crimes. It's a story of mass murder, of mass kidnapping, of mass rape, of brutalization. Um, and, and, and it's not surprising that it's a scarring story. You know, as Jews, we've got PhDs in trauma. We know what it's like to be killed and skewered and, and demeaned and diminished and demonized. We have one set of responses to trauma with its strengths and its weaknesses. And they have another set of uh, responses and we it's helpful for us to learn from one another but you know when you look at someone like Frederick Douglass who was a slave taught himself how to read uh, and eventually became kind of the eloquent voice of, of, of black America um, in in during the Civil War and in the period after that he acknowledged the complexity of celebrating July 4th but he also acknowledged the power of American ideals Martin Luther King, whose birthday we're uh, celebrating this week, was not unaware of the pain and the anguish and the horrors and the evils. He himself had his house bombed by the evil ones. He himself was threatened and saw his family threatened repeatedly. But what did he do? What was his genius? He activated the American ideals. He kept quoting the Bible, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And he held up a mirror to white America saying, is this what you wanna be? Is this who you are? I know who you wanna be. It's the Constitution, it's the Declaration of Independence. Look at the gap and forward the gap. He didn't say, look how ugly you are and you're, and you're irredeemable. So I think if Martin Luther King Jr. came back to the college campus and he heard every white being accused of being a white supremacist, he'd say, wait a minute, watch your language. If everybody's a white supremacist, it's kind of like, you know, in the, in the movie, The Incredibles, if everybody's special, nobody's special, Yeah. right? Yeah. So if everybody's a white supremacist, first of all, what language did it, do I have left for real white supremacists? And second of all, if you tell me that you're defining me by the worst moment, not of my life, not the worst thing I ever did, but the worst moment that anybody who might have my skin color ever did, and that we're frozen there, and I cannot ever get out of it. 
Why should I try? If we're really going to work our community muscles, if we're really going to work our idealistic muscles, if we're really going to try to get out of the hole that we're in, we have to learn from our ancestors, which is pulling out, what did Abraham Lincoln call it? The better angels of our nature. You don't aim low, you aim high. And, and you know, I've read a lot of the literature that comes from the 1619 Project and the uh, and Ta-Nehisi Coates and others. If you say America is, um, is so irredeemable and you, Ta-Nehisi Coates, write a, a letter, an extended public letter to your 15-year-old son where you barely mention Martin Luther King, you barely mention Barack Obama, you barely mention any African-American gains, you barely talk about how comfortable you're gosh darn life is because you need to wallow in the anger and the fear and the despair you're not just doing a disservice to your 15 year old you're not just doing a disservice to all your followers you're also doing a disservice to whites and hispanics and others who might ally with you and one of the uncomfortable truths of the donald trump uh 75 million is some of those voters are hispanic voters some of those voters are African-American voters, particularly African-American male voters who say, I don't want to be defined just as a victim. I don't want to be defined just as living in an America that's irredeemable. I want to buy into the American ideals. I want to buy into the expansiveness, the generosity, the flexibility. And so I think that we have to have a serious conversation in the United States. The right has to get beyond its and patriotic patriotism. It has to get beyond these patriots. It has to get beyond its sense of such injury. I mean, after four years of being in charge, after four years of having a Republican uh, majority in the Senate, after after an election, by the way, when we get to the election, one of the things we have to have to explain in Congressman Roy of Texas, who's a right-wing Trumpite, did this brilliantly. He said, every single person who doubts the presidential election results should also doubt the congressional results that resulted in a gain for Republicans in Congress. And he actually questioned the, the seating of some of the same Republican members of Congress who were questioning the election results, saying, well, then maybe your election results are illegitimate because we really had magic ballots that somehow were able to defeat the Democrats' um, hope to really get a big boost in the House, and they barely won the Senate, yet also defeated Donald Trump. Maybe it was the messiness of democracy, and maybe it was the message from our wonderful muscular moderates in the middle, hmm, I want to balance. So through balance, through nuance, through song, through poetry, through hope and not fear, I, we, I believe we do have a shot to heal this country. I, I love that message of optimism. Uh, do you want to I, I was just going to say a, a couple of things. One, uh, you mentioned if, if, Martin, if Dr. Martin Luther King would, would come today to a college campus, uh, I, I think a lot of us might fear that he himself would be canceled. Um, yeah. and, and I'm not saying that based on, but based on a whim. I, I was listening to something recently that, and they were, they were uh, uh, Ira Glasser, who was the director of the ACLU, uh, he, he routinely surveys uh, college students that he speaks in front of about what they feel about the First Amendment. And there has never been such low support for the First Amendment amongst people, you know, age 30 and, and under. It's, it's, it, it really is. It's the bedrock of, of, of democracy is the ability to have freedom of speech. And we're living in a time when Donald Trump is, is you know, like it or not. I mean, it, it, he, what, what happened? I mean, he, he was taken on, off of all of his social media platforms, which legally they have the, the ability to do. But, you know, one must ask if that's, 
the right thing for for us to be doing. He's the president of the United States. Um, we're going through a time when if you you know have wrong speak, you might not be able to uh, to to have your uh, your voice spoken out in public. I think that there's a, a particular culture where if you feel a certain way or if you have certain opinions, you don't talk about them at, at work because there's a fear that you're going to be fired or you're going to lose your job. And, and these are things that are commonplace for people to feel. And we're not talking about life in China or life in the Soviet Union. We're talking about life in the United States of America in 2021. Uh, I think it's 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 a dangerous place to be. Uh, and, and, and beyond that, um, I would say that if... If the Democrats want to, um, and I think maybe actually I would ask your, your, your opinion on this. Um, does any of this have to do, or if Biden really wants to unite the country, are, are the Democrats going to have to uh, reach out more towards the middle in terms of the geographical middle uh, and, and stop being a bi-coastal party uh, or, or so, you know, I remember a time when the Democrats, of course, DFL was Democratic farmer and laborer. I mean, farmer was a big part of that, and 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 uh, and we're talking about representing the needs of of workers that worked in, you know, industry and coal or in, or in steel and in places like West Virginia and places like Ohio and places like Indiana, Dan, and uh, and 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 it feels like the party maybe abandoned those constituencies, uh, and and now those constituencies are are you know. The industry is gone, so maybe they're more unemployed, and 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 it seems like that wasn't necessarily a natural. The Republican Party wasn't such a natural place for them to be, perhaps, but they reached out to them because the Democratic Party maybe abandoned them. Is there any truth to that? Uh, yeah, I, look, I, I think Joe Biden understands that. I think that you know when we look back on the twenty twenty election and we talk about the nomination, we'll talk about it as a bit of a mini civil war. Right. And if you look at what all the reporters were telling us, every expert was telling us was because they read Twitter. Right. And Twitter is not America. Twitter ain't Main Street. Twitter is what I call Twitter dumb, D-U-M-B. And it brings out the extremes of the left, the far left and the far right. And so every reporter who writes these stupid, lazy articles these days where they quote something from Twitter, and then they take a screenshot of the tweet. I mean, what, I need to read this twice? What am I, an idiot? Um, and, and then they think that's 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 reporting the man on the street or the person on the street. That's not. That's reporting the, the idiots on Twitter. Um, so they all thought that this was going to be a, a a fight for the you know far left of the Democratic Party. Would it be Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? Um, uh, and and we saw that Joe Biden won. And who who really saved his behind? African American moderate voters in South Carolina, right? Yeah. So don't also say, oh, you know every. Black Lives Matter uh, speaker speaks for every African-American. That, that's actually a form of grotesque racism in itself, right? Just because they share the same skin color and even certain cultural and political affinities, it doesn't mean they all march as one and talk as one and act as one. That's a, that, that, that's a, that's a clumping that I think is so disrespectful to, 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 to any, any group, any, any uh, ethnic, racial, um, political grouping. Um, so uh, yeah, look, let's go back to you know, your lunch pail Democrats, your Joe Sixpack Democrats, your FDR Democrats, um, your, your Joe the Plumber Democrats. These were all ways of, of characterizing that working class Democrat, that heartland Democrat uh, who didn't believe in the, um, the, the, the effete elites of the East Coast or the West Coast, but believed in the United States of America and the heartland and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And 
I, I don't know how many more votes the Democrats can squeeze from the Ivy League. And I don't know how many more Democrats, how, how many votes they can squeeze from Hollywood. Uh, I know they can squeeze a lot more money uh, from there, but you can't just follow the money, you have to follow the votes. And we saw this, that the, how did Hillary Clinton lose? Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Yep. How did Joe Biden win? Blue collar states, yep. Right, so, so don't give up on the blue collars and, and the cultural war is really essential. And if you really want to understand the Trump presidency, you have to go back to 2015, the fall of 2015, when there was a spate of articles about the idiocy of PC-ness on, on college campuses from the Yale Halloween controversy, if you remember that, where um, it was unacceptable to, to dress up for Halloween and that caused the whole thing to the- Cultural uh, appropriation. Uh, yeah, claims of cultural appropriation on Halloween. The, um, the, su- the, the, the Oberlin sushi crisis, yep. where just because some Midwest people trying to entertain students serve sushi, it was seen as like an attack on the authenticity of Japanese culture. And the president of the United States at the time, you might remember him, his name was Barack Obama, who totally came from that world. The presumptive Democratic nominee of the time, who totally came from that world, Hillary Clinton, they didn't denounce it intelligently enough, harshly enough, powerfully enough, passionately enough. And who did it did? Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, the big liar, came across as the big truth teller. Yeah. And and Obama and Hillary Clinton, who I think are fundamentally honest people and on the scale of politicians, far more on the honest side, came across as liars. I like how you frame that. They, they, they <laughs> couldn't buy it. in. They were, they were buying into the great American idiocy that most Americans were laughing at, even the stupid parents paying $70,000 a year for it without saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm a consumer. How did you turn the Ivy Leagues into these communist propaganda re-education camps? Aren't they supposed to be places to expand the mind, to sharpen cultural inquiry and, culture and, and, and critical inquiry, rather than to impose certain cultural forms and, 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 certain, and, 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 and certain hymnals that you must sing from? It's terrifying. It's scary. There's a cultural rot there. That, and I say, look, you know, I, I'm a case of arrested development. I got to university and never left. I love the university. But I love a university that's critical, that's open-minded, that's thoughtful, that doesn't create these automatons or these double thinkers, these people who are so afraid yeah. to deviate. And, you know, I, I, you kindly mentioned at the beginning, uh, this new book that I have with Natan Sharansky, the great Soviet dissident. Imagine what it is for me to turn to Natan Sharansky and tell him that 62% of Americans report that at some point in their daily life, in their regular interactions, what you said, they don't share their political beliefs because they're afraid. And what was a double thinker? A double thinker was somebody who thought one thing, but acted in a way to adhere to the communist party orthodoxy, right? And so today it comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. Do you know how devastating it is for this great Soviet dissident who believes so much in the power of freedom to hear that the country that he reveres, the country that saved him, the country of Ronald Reagan and Henry Jackson, Democrat and Republican, I think on purpose, has forgotten what it is to be free, what it is to sit down with somebody and say, hey, I disagree with you, let's have a cup of coffee. Not, hey, I disagree with you, let's cancel you or bully you. Yeah, and that, that's the worrying, uh, and, and we've spoken at length about that because that's something I've written about, it's something I've researched, and it, it's something um, that, that is extremely worrying uh, about the, um, the academic kind of uh, elite um, culture that's taking place in America. 
And, and it's so ironic because it's coming from places where you have to pay 50, 60, $70,000 a year to be there. And so the, 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 the irony that those kind of ideas are, are coming out of those bastions is, is it, it's funny, not in a laughable way. It's, it's, it's sad, uh, funny. And, and I hope, look, um, you know, I'm an optimist about human nature and I, and, and you know, a lot of us here in Israel for, for Israeli concerns, but, but also as an American and with family in America, I was, I, I breathed a huge sigh of relief when Joe Biden got the nomination and not Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders because of the direction they would have dragged America. And what it shows us is that at the end of the day, and like you said, you, you don't hear the man on the street on Twitter. At the end of the day, I think most Americans are moderate. Most Americans are centrist. Um, and they reject the extremes. They realize that the extremes have gone too far. But because of this cancel culture that's popped up, they're afraid to say. They're afraid to say it. And, and you run up uh, was it double speak or double think. Going back to my uh, my my high school reading of 1984. Um, um, and and it's a shame that we have to live in in, in that. I actually uh, the same friend that I mentioned at the beginning who asked not to be named. He asked not to be named. Uh, now, now he's he's very much on the right. Uh, and he's, he's, he's an intellectual of the right. And he's afraid to say it because he's looking for academic positions uh, yeah. out in the Western world. I won't say more than that. And he's afraid. You, you've, you've said too much. I've said too much. Run away. Um, run away. I, wa- I want to, you know, but, but I'm optimistic. And even here in Israel, you know, people always talk about how polarized Israel and how extreme Israel is. And at the end of the day, look at where 80% of the votes go. 80% of the votes don't go to merits and they don't go to, they don't go to, uh, What's my Yudit, the far, far right party? And they don't even go to Yamina, which is not really that far right of a party anymore. They go to what we would call anywhere between the center left and the center right. And that's where, you know, the vast majority of the Israeli populace is. And, and it's always uh, glad to see it. I want to take this and <coughs> Benny's having coughing fits here and there, but he has tested negative for COVID. So this we, week, uh, negative COVID. There's no so, COVID. <laughs> I hope he doesn't get me sick here. Um, I don't know. Take your cough, uh, your cough drop. I want to transition with the little bit of time we have left um, to talk, to kind of transit, you know, you're, you're an acclaimed historian of the presidency and you've written numerous books, um, but you're also a, a major Jewish thinker um, and, and a Jewish, uh, I don't want to say philosopher, but, but you write about Jewish ideas and you write about Jewish politics. You write about uh, Israeli politics and society uh, at length. And I kind of want to transition to, to a couple things. And I also want to get into the two most recent books you've written about Zionism and the one you wrote with the, the great Nathan Sharansky. Um, you know, I'm looking at the American Jewish community and, and that's kind of what I do in, in one of my uh, jobs at the JPPI is I look a lot at the American Jewish community and where that's going. And, and more than half of our listeners are sitting in the American Jewish community and are even listening now. There is a divide um, that I, I didn't see coming in the American Jewish community, where the vast majority of American Jews, I think, have become more and more in tune with liberal America, and then a decently sized minority, maybe 30%, according to some polls, depending on how you read the polls, has, has kind of taken on I don't want to say the Trump narrative, but it's kind of part of this Trump camp, this this kind of nationalistic, uh, make America great again camp. Something I didn't think that would ever happen within the Jewish people. Have we lost um, unity within the American Jewish community, the second largest 
uh, Jewish community in the world? Have we lost unity? It, can we talk about one American Jewish community anymore? I'd be glad if you could just this morning, on these I, ideas. I, yeah. Just this morning, I was invited uh, by, by an organization that remained nameless to give a talk on American Jewry and its central challenge of dual loyalty. And I said, you know, I think dual loyalty was, a, was, was potentially a problem in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s when you had a consensus that was deeply committed to Judaism and Zionism and Americanism, and there was a kind of juggling act. I think my problem with much of American Jewry today is not enough loyalty. <laughs> um, there's not dual loyalty to, because there's not enough loyalty to Judaism and to Zionism, and there is an inordinate amount of loyalty, as you're suggesting, to left-wing progressivism for 70% of the community. That is the hymnal from which they sing. That is the, the church uh, or synagogue in which they, they pray. Um, that's, that's the first worrying sign. The second worrying sign is indeed this polarization where I could tell you story after story of people from the left and from the right, people especially pro-Trump and anti-Trump who just can't stand, can't, can't, can't bear to be in the same room with a friend, ex-friend, a colleague, ex-colleague, a sister-in-law, a brother-in-law, because they dare to disagree, they dare to, to think differently. And that, that the toxicity we see in the United States of America, um, we certainly see in the Jewish community. But two more positive notes and approaches. One, the book that you were so kind to mention, The Zionist Ideas, was written, it's based on a book from 1959 called The Zionist Idea, that we are a people, Am Yisrael, that we have ties to a particular homeland, Eretz Yisrael, and that we have the right to establish a state on that homeland, Medinat Yisrael. I added an S, the Zionist ideas. And I broadened the conversation. Arthur Hertzberg, who wrote the original book, and there's no criticism there because it was an extraordinary classic, uh, had 34 thinkers. I had 168 thinkers from left to right, religious, non-religious. And I wanted the S because the S is also like a question mark rather than exclamation point. And the S invites people in. And when the book came out, for the 70th anniversary of the state of Israel, I said, if I can pull off 70 Zionist salons, mostly in the United States, but also elsewhere, and get 70 groups of people talking about Israel and talking about it in these terms of Zionism and not BB, not BDS, not Palestinians, not left, not right, but who we are and who we wanna be and who we're gonna be, I'll feel like that was my gift to the Jewish people. When COVID hit, I think I'd already done over 220 different Zionist salons wow. in five different countries, the United States, the UK, Canada, South Africa, Australia, I'm sorry, six, and Israel. And what I saw was the opposite of what we see when we read the newspaper. What I saw was the opposite of what we hear when we hear the yelling and screaming between the Trumpians and the Bidenians. What I saw was a joy, a fascination and excitement when I invited them to, to speak from the middle and think from the middle. And when I, when, and when I introduced them to left-wing authors and right-wing authors, religious authors and non-religious authors, Mizrahi authors and Ashkenazi authors, male authors and female authors said, this is the Zionist conversation, join it. Are you with it? Wow, I never heard of that kind of Zionism before. I've only heard of Zionism, the guilt trip. I only heard of Zionism of the, of the Israel right or wrong. I've only heard of Zionism of the, the hypercriticism. And what's that Zionism that I'm giving? It's a Zionism that we've given birthright to. I'm honored to be the uh, lay education chair of birthright. And so there is also a centrist conversation going on. And I, what do I call this? I call this identity Zionism. We push, we have to, we, we've been not only in an era of political Zionism, but even partisan Zionism and hyper-partisan Zionism. And too many people, people like J Street, 
people like ZOA, so left and right, um, have made Israel kind of this bone of contention. And so everybody says, ugh. But look at the magic when people come and visit back when travel was a verb. <laughs> look at the magic when, when, when you say, hey, you feel like you're in nothing. You worship in the church of Oprah Winfrey and of Barack Obama, but you actually are part of this amazing story of the Jewish people. It's your birthright. And I'm not going to tell you to go left or right. I'm not going to tell you what I mean. I just want you to be captain of your own Jewish journey. I'm, I'm quoting birthright talk. And yeah. then I talk with them about the Zionist ideas. They're excited. They're thrilled. And so if I felt like we had done our best job of building up from the center, of, of finding the muscular models in the Jewish community, of opening up the Zionist conversation, I'd say, ah, we're cooked. We're lost. But I don't think we have. And this uh, new book of ours uh, that I had the privilege of writing with Natan Sharansky, or a festo, or a manifestoir. We're using his extraordinary, right, uh, extraordinary life story of what he says, 999. I was nine years in Gulag, nine years in Israeli politics, nine years in Jewish agency. I don't know where I suffered most. <laughs> and then if I quote him, he says, breath. yes, I suffered most in politics. Um, and we actually, we literally signed a contract for the book to be called 999. And I never liked that as a title because A, a book title should never be an inside joke. B, I worried about my Christian friends might hear 999, 666, the devil. Yeah. C, my German friends might hear 999. <laughs> and I'm sitting in Los Angeles with an extraordinary mind, a wonderful soul, a great Jew, David Suisa of the LA Jewish Journal. And I tell him, I said, we're looking for a, a title. He says, well, tell me about the book. I said, well, the book is about dialogue. The book is that the secret of the Soviet Jewish movement, which by the way, not enough of us tell our kids about and our grandkids about, we should be so proud as American Jews, as Canadian Jews, as British Jews, what we did to save Soviet Jewry. And we think now, oh, everybody's on the same page yelling shlach me. We might've yelled shlach me, let my people go, but we came from the left and the right. We came religious, non-religious. We had all kinds of crazy fights. We had fights between the SSSJ and the UCSJ and the ABCJ. And I mean, we were totally balkanized and yet we knew how to unite. And I say, Natan Sharansky, for nine years, is in the Soviet prison system, the Gulag. For nine years, he barely gets any visitors. For nine years, he's told by the KGB, you're forgotten, you're abandoned, you're alone. And he says, but I knew I was never alone because I'm a member of the Jewish people. And Suisa goes, that's it. For 75 years, we've been obsessed with never again. And of course, we revere and honor our Holocaust martyrs. But every young Jew should know, and every old Jew needs to be reminded that part of the special thing about being part of the Jewish people is you're never alone. You're part of this extraordinary network. It's a network of values. It's a network of history, but it's also a network of people who will have your back and do. And so in the book, we invite people and we try to give tools for dialogue. First by saying, yeah, we're really good at arguing. We're also really good at rolling up our sleeves and uniting when necessary. Yeah. We may have very contentious issues from the Western Wall to Bibi Netanyahu, to Iran, to Barack Obama, to Donald Trump, but we also have things that unite us. You know, through my work in Birthright, for the last two, three years, I've watched how so many reform and conservative rabbis get up and they yell and scream about the Kotel. And I agree with the need to have a more open egalitarian approach to the Western Wall. I, I liked the the notion of one wall for one people and, and the compromise that Sharansky and Netanyahu originally uh, established. But I also don't believe that that is the core 
challenge or core issue for the Jewish people. And I believe in the same way we're talking about the Democrats cutting themselves off at the knees. I believe that when a conservative reform rabbi gets up and yells and screams about that and demonizes Israel and tries to make Israel look ugly and theocratic and extreme because of that, he or she is actually hurting themselves because they should be trying to recruit people to join the Jewish people. But I asked Len Sachs, who's the extraordinary demographer who tra sure. charts birthright. I said to him, tell me, Len, in the last three, four years when the Kotel has been such a bone of contention, have you seen it in the surveys of birthright participants? He said, the visit to the Kotel, the visit to the Western Wall continues to be not just the spiritual highlight of their trip, not only the emotional highlight and the communal highlight of the trip, but also it's the spiritual highlight and the emotional highlight of their lives. What does that teach us? One, yes, birthright's doing its job. It's bringing in people who aren't Jewish professionals. It's bringing in people who aren't, you know, don't have PhDs in, in Jewish communal fighting. But it also shows that the Jew, the soul of the Jew, looks beyond the Haredim, looks beyond the ultra-Orthodox versus the women of the wall. And again, I support the women of the wall on this. And I'm appalled by the ultra-Orthodox violence there. But they see the Kotel. They see thousands of years of Jewish history. They see thousands of years of Jewish continuity. They see a Judaism that isn't just about the big suburban synagogue where the most important thing is how beautifully you dress and how big your hat is and how much you make, but who you are and what's your soul and how are you connected to these people. And that's the story we're not telling enough. That's the song we're not singing enough. So in some ways, my, my response to the American scene and to the Jewish scene is the same. We've got an amazing product. We've got extraordinary ideals. We've got so many people who are sitting at home with soul sickness, feeling lost, feeling abandoned. No, you're never alone. Touch these ideas, touch these ideals and soar. Let, let me, I mean, it's beautiful um, and it's inspirational. Let, let me ask you though, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in Israel and obviously I chose to come here um, and I'm looking at it American Jewish leaders, the majority of whom are more on the liberal side than on the conservative side, <clears throat> look at Israel and, and they connect to Israel and they come here and they visit and they bring groups. But, you know, we always talk about we always talk about people who are pro-Israel and, and, and anti-Israel. What we don't talk about is people who are indifferent to Israel. And in this, in this context, I'm, I'm specifically talking about American Jews, not just American Jews, but that's the, the majority <clears throat> excuse me, the majority of Jews outside of Israel live, live in the United States, uh, in, in Canada. And, le and let's talk about, you know, the indifference to Israel. And if you are a community leader, if you are a rabbi, reformer, conservative, or, or just any kind of uh, non-Orthodox rabbi, you care about Israel. And, and most, the vast majority of them do. And they come here and they've been here multiple times. And a lot of them have lived here and, and many of them speak Hebrew to one extent or another, and they see things that they can't accept about Israel. And so for them, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think through their eyes, um, for them to get up in front of their community, yes, there, there needs to be an engagement, needs to be an excitement, people, you know, connecting people to Israel and through that connecting them to the arc of Jewish history and that you have a place you're never alone, like your, like your book said. Um, and, and at the same time, though, their, I, I think they would say, and I've had many conversations with people like this, their activism, you know, whether it's the Kotel issue or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, generally centers around issues of religion and state and religious freedoms here. 
um, and secondly, on, on the Palestinian issue and issues of, of human rights, they're saying that is their engagement with Israel. Their engagement with Israel, they're engaged. They want to change it to their ideals of how they view Judaism, of how they view what, I mean, are they in a tough spot in that in, in, when you're a Jewish leader, everything you you say, you know, is both private and public at the same time. You're speaking to your community, but it also gets out of your community. I mean, what, what do you do with that? If you're an American Jew and things that are happening in Israel on a policy level, I'm not talking about people who are completely indifferent to Israel. I'm not talking about people who have been convinced that Israel doesn't have a place to exist. I'm talking about the people who love Israel as they think it should be and not as it is. What do they do? How do they do that in their communities with their, with their congregants um, and, you know, maybe such people like this are listening now. Um, how do you try to fix the Israel that you want it to be and not create these divides that end up coming out of it? I mean, it's kind of a tough spot to be in. So first of all, I'll tell you how not to do it. <laughs> the best way, that, how not to do it is to start by, start every conversation about Israel, about the religious state issue and about the Palestinian issue. To have every sermon you give. To on Yom Kippur, Instead of challenging your congregation to really look inward and find out who they can be and who they can be as individuals and as Jews to start bashing Bibi. And I've seen this happen. I've read the transcripts of the sermons, right? It's lazy. It's virtue signaling. It's, and, 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 and you know, in the same way that I say that all the United States of America and all its complexity shouldn't be defined by 1619. And most rabbis wouldn't define, even in the era of Black Lives Matter, wouldn't define America, wouldn't define their neighborhood only by Black Lives Matter, so too, should they not only define Israel through that lens, and I call it the occupation preoccupation. I once got into terrible trouble because I noticed that the um, that in my trip to the reconstructions for medical college in Philadelphia, I landed in the Philadelphia airport and I drove and I went through the moonscape of the modern American ghetto, acres and acres of abandoned territory and broken lives. And I know how many Reconstructionist rabbis are so quick to condemn Israel, but they didn't seem to be rolling up their sleeves to do enough to fix their own darn neighborhood. Um, and because and because I'm a New Yorker, I, I could see Philadelphia through those jaundice eyes. In New York, I don't see it in the same way. Um, so I, I was struck by the hypocrisy. It's so easy to judge Israel from afar. It's much easier to, um, it, it, it's, it's much harder, and, and it's much easier to, to be distant about your own problems from up close. Uh, it's much harder to fix it from within. Having said that, I don't want either regular Jews or rabbis to feel like outsiders in their own homeland. And I want them to feel a sense of ownership and do fix it. So what part of the reason why I like to inject the phrase identity Zionism is I say, it's like, it's do you start the PhD program before you go to undergraduate? Israel 101, birthright 101, doesn't pretend that Israel is a perfect country, but doesn't start with a Palestinian problem. We get to it, but that's not the first day. We try to give more of an experience. We try to give more of a positive experience. The what, what I, I agree with you that I'm, I'm most afraid. I'm not afraid of the few, very, very few marginal, if not now Jews, these haters who say as a Jew, this and as a Jew, that they're really marginal. I'm afraid, and you'll see how old I am, um, by what we might call chorus line Jews from that famous song and that famous Broadway musical from the 1970s. And I felt nothing, mm. right? They felt nothing because they're busy with their careers. They felt nothing because they're rabbis and the New York Times only show an Israel that's embattled. They felt nothing because they think of Israel as an apartheid state, a horrific blood libel, and they don't read what, about what I was saying earlier about Israelis and Arabs, Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews working together. They just don't see it. 
So my first reaction is before you become a hypercritic, become a visitor <laughs> and then become a frequent visitor and then start fixing things, roll up your sleeves that way. So identity Zionism is saying, I'm not gonna pretend that everything's perfect, but nothing is perfect in any country. But first let's see, how does it help my identity? And let's also acknowledge that the more important that Israel has become to help inspire American Jews, the more American Jews are likely to be annoyed by parts of Israel that don't help them in that narrative. In the same way that the more Israeli Jews recognize how essential American Jews are as partners in fighting against delegitimization, fighting against Zionism, racism, and Israel apartheid. And so they're gonna be even more annoyed when their American Jewish brothers and sisters don't help them. So there's a kind of interesting paradox there um, of our intimacy, what we call in the book, our convergence sometimes leads to divergence or sometimes leads to uh, an emphasizing of the divergence. We are different, but the difference can, can sometimes lead us to learn from one another, not just demonize one another. And it all gets back to what we started with, which is this sense of this inability to learn from one another. You know, So I, right after Hillary Clinton lost um, and Donald Trump won, even though everybody was reading the New York Times that said Hillary Clinton was gonna win back in 2016, people don't like making jokes about this. Um, I, uh, I preached a sermon at a synagogue. It's so exciting because I usually teach, right? But here I was invited to give a Devar Torah, right? But I'm preaching a sermon, right? Because I can use the word preach. And the rabbi said, don't talk, don't talk politics. It's very divided. The community is really divided. I just don't talk politics. So of course I talk politics. <laughs> and I said, and you, were you never know, invited again. <laughs> I, I said, you know, we can we can emphasize our differences. We can also we can agree to disagree, but we can also agree to agree. Let's look at the, the seven of 12, the, Ted Koch, yeah. the, Koch thing, the thing on which we agree. But then I also said, I want to finish by giving you homework because I'm a professor. I'd like to give this to listeners. Find somebody who voted the wrong way and talk to them. And afterwards, I got the best correction in my life. Uh, so, somebody comes up to me and says, Professor Troy, I really like what you said, but I'm a psychologist. Say what you said again, but next time tell people, don't just talk to them, but listen to them. And I said, wow, this person is wise. It's not just that we've forgotten how to talk to one another. We've really forgotten how to listen to one another. Mm. We've forgotten how to listen to one another to say, huh, what can I learn from that alternate point of view? Natan has this powerful, crazy metaphor where he's in the gulag, he's in the punishment cell, which is this sensory deprivation chamber where you're only supposed to be in for more than, you can't, if you're there for more than 15 days, they were afraid you wouldn't survive psychologically. They kept on breaking the rules for Natan Sharansky because he was so annoying to them. He was in punishment cells for over 405 days. And he's sane today. How did he stay sane? He'd been a chess master in his youth and he played chess in his head again and again and again. And what did he do? He said it was great because it meant that I was going to win because I'm playing. But he plays chess. And when he finishes the game, I mean, this is a mind that I certainly don't have. He twirls the chessboard around and replays the game. If he said, I started on black, I then start on white. If I started on white, I then start on black. Unbelievable. Said, from, I've, I've heard he this said, story before, but I didn't realize just how much of a genius he is. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, right? He was able to live in his head for nine years on so many levels. And, and he said, and from there I learned when I entered into politics and into Jewish agency, I hear you and I turn the chessboard around. I don't just play my side. I try to play your side too. And from there, I learned both the strengths of my argument and the weaknesses of my argument and I learned the strengths of your argument and the weaknesses of your argument. And, and you, you become better for it. And we, we try to and do this. You become better for it. And, we try to and, do and this with so, the platform. And, and you guys have done that in a beautiful way. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. And we try to do this. And, and you know, I, I spent a few years as an intelligence analyst 
And that's kind of the tradecraft is um, put yourself in the other person's right. shoes and try that's to understand, that. <laughs> try to understand the world through through their lens, through their eyes, through their context. Obviously, we're limited in how we can do that. Right. But I think the lesson of the past few years is, you know, and and maybe you know, uh, Professor Troy, we're going to take your homework and we're going to give it to our listeners today. Um, and and so find someone who voted wrong in your eyes, and talk to them, and have a discussion. Listen, to listen. I, I I was going to say it is the single most important, and at the same time, the single most bothersome trait that I find in people in my in my life personally and in the world overall, which is that what you, exactly what you just said. People talk to people, and instead of listening, they're passively listening to come up with their rebuttal to what right. they're going to say next. Yeah. How can I have it's it's not a right. game. It's communication. It is the most important thing in the entire world. And and it's 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 we're in a place that I think is is can only go up from where we are, I think. And, and absolutely. But to do that, you need the quality that Donald Trump truly lacked, which is humility. You need, need a little humility because I have to sit with you, even though we, we don't we, we barely know each other and say there's something I can learn from you. If there's something I can learn from you, it's worth listening to you. If there isn't, I just need to rebut you or not just rebut you, but eviscerate you, yeah. right? And wipe you out and cancel you. I have to beat you. And I think I have and to I defeat th- you in this, right, in this comment, right? And Professor Troy, I think that that's what kind of bothers me the most about it because if you're somebody who is only listening to rebut, you inherently believe that you're correct and that right. you know it all, which, which, is, moment, which is helpful. Right. You're literally living through your entire existence on this planet, believing that you have all the answers. Yeah. And, and, it, and think of Natan Sharansky in that punishment cell. He still felt he has something to learn from himself, let alone from others. There's still, right? There's so still smart. He learn from himself. Right? With his own imaginary friend. Right, right. It really is. You know, and, and, and we certainly, and, and, and once he's been out, he has this zeal to learn from others. What's he doing, What's he doing now? Writing books. He's peddling this brilliant book called Never Alone. Right. Um, he's also the, <laughs> he's also the, uh, and we've been doing actually a lot of Zooms in it. It's been very, it's been fascinating process. Um, he's also the head of the Shlichim Institute of the Jewish Agency, uh, the emissaries who are so important. And they're trying now not only to educate them better for when they get to the United States or the rest of the world, but also when they come back, do a debrief and use them as emissaries to other corners of Israeli society. So we really can do what you were saying earlier, which is build double, double road uh, yeah. Israel and the diaspora. So yeah, once you're here, you've had two, three years in, in Australia and the UK and Canada, you're, you're fluent. Explain it to your, your friends. And then he's also the chair of the, um, of the, uh, of ISGAP, which is uh, fighting anti-Semitism. And he's also the chair of the new museum in uh, Kiev uh, to memorize, to uh, memorialize Babi Yar. Wow. So he's in his, he's about to celebrate his 73rd birthday this week. He's Parshat Bo. Can you believe it? That his bar mitzvah Parsha is Bo, Shlachan Ami, let my people go. I mean, the guy has had like a Hollywood life. I, um, I think that they should give him a and, regular uh, uh, corner on the news here every night to yeah. help people get through bedud, to get through isolation. Yeah, he did an amazing thing for the for the Jewish agency that there's a, there's a short little three minute clip. I remember notes of, of how to do that, um, and it's all in your head, right? It's all how you approach things. It's all how you turn turn the chessboard around. Uh, so, you know, his notion of retirement as a he's never been very retiring. Um, uh, uh, he's still a very warm, wonderful, bubbly person, and and b he's. Uh, I, I tend to work until four o'clock in the morning. I would have been sending drafts over, and by five thirty in the morning, somebody was working on it. So the, the book was like written. At least a good, 
a good 21, 22 hours a day it was covered. It's like, it's like me and Benny. I work till about three every morning and he gets up at five every morning and, and yeah. <laughs> we're always you know, exchanging messages in the night, you know, about uh, what yeah. we're going to do on the yeah. next show. You know, I, Natan, I've met him many times over the years uh, in his in his position as uh, uh, when he was uh, chairman of the Jewish agency and our think tank is uh, kind of affiliated with the Jewish agency. Yeah. So I've met him a few times, but I actually had the singular honor of um, he was supposed to be an aide, a witness. Um, for those who aren't familiar, there's witnesses in, in Jewish wedding, and it's a very um, important uh, position at a Jewish wedding. So uh, my, my very good friend, David Keyes, got married. Oh, sure. Natan Sharansky was supposed to be uh, the aide, the witness, and he got stuck in traffic. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, I was um, asked to to jump in at the last second and be the witness. And um, and I was very honored to do that. And I, to this day, I get to say the story that I got to fill in for Natan Sharansky in, wow. in such a momentous event. Um, I, I, I have a feeling that there are many more things we could talk about. Uh, I know your time is quickly wrapping up and, and you have to go to uh, your many Zoom meetings. We'd be very glad to have you on the show to discuss, uh, again, to discuss more ideas. We, we'd be glad to give our listeners the homework assignment that you, uh, that, that you offered as a professor. So if, if there are listeners uh, listening live or to the recording later on who want to take on the challenge of finding someone, uh, whether in the American context, the Israeli context, or a different you know, country, we, as we said, we have listeners in 68 countries, and you, um, you, you have friends or family or colleagues who voted wrong, okay, who think... Caveat, if you live in a country that's a totalitarian regime, you should probably yes, not yeah, do, okay. this. do this. So, so be careful. For our four, this if you're for in Somalia, four, please. For our, four, for our four listeners in Iran, please be careful. Um, we actually have four listeners in Iran. Um, no, for those of you who live in countries that do have political debate and discussion um, and you want to take on this challenge and report to us and email us, uh, send us a message about how it went, if you learned something, if you managed to connect with someone. Uh, obviously, you know, we're not going to totally change our views, but it does you know, this is something that I've taken on in my life. I think, I think you have as well. Um, and like we said, it's kind of one of the points of this show is, is to, to do that. And so if you want to do that, that project over the next week or two or whenever and email us, and we'll be glad to share some of the results <coughs> on upcoming episodes. Um, we're glad to do that. Uh, professor, if people I'd want love to, to hear that, if, yeah, and, and we'd be glad to share that. Um, before, before we wrap up, uh, Benny wants to ask uh, Fun question. We, we like to wrap things up with a fun question unrelated right. to the entire podcast. So I actually have, a, you can give me a very quick answer Two two fun questions. Number one, you're a presidential historian. So I assume that you watch the West Wing at some point yes. in time in your life. Uh, what do, I'm an obsessive viewer of the West Wing. My wife uh, hates the fact that I will watch it over and over and over again, probably show. like 30 times now. I've seen show. every episode. Uh, do you think that real life is more West Wing or uh, House of Cards in the presidency? <laughs> uh, and secondly, would be uh, name your three favorite presidents of all time. I'll, I'll add a third fun question. Uh, West Wing or House of Cards? I just asked that. Oh, did you? Yeah. I missed that. I'm sorry. So I desperately want an America that's West Wing and not House of Cards. Um, <laughs> but what's more? And, 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 and I think that the, 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 there, there was a lot of that, that House of Cards went way too far because, you know, when, the, when you went to get into murder and, and they just have to cross that line. And we've always been very good as Americans at not crossing that line. And that's the thing that was so upsetting about January 6th. Uh, the thing that was least believable about West Wing, what made it a great show is that 
you're part of the family and you have a sense of family. It's like what made MASH a great show and so many of these shows, uh, Hill Street Blues, you have to feel like a part of the family. And anybody who's ever been to the White House knows that it is, as my brother Tebby Troy calls it in his extraordinary book, Fight House, that um, the, the, the warmth between every one of the aides uh, is actually replaced by intense rivalry. And every time I'm with President Bartlett, it means that somebody else isn't. And so it's really a doggy dog kind of a competition. And that's the thing that would have made it a very unpleasant show to watch, but would have made it a more real show. Uh, so, but, but on the whole, um, I still think America's worked. Look, it's, an, it's what you said, it's an idea. It's an extraordinary experiment that keeps on failing up, uh, partially because it's more West Wing than House of Cards. Um, three of my favorite presidents, I would say, first of all, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, his daughter said, my, my father had to be the uh, bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He was like a one-man entertainment show, and, uh, and to kind of see that, to be in that, would have been would have been an extraordinary uh, opportunity. I have to be cliche and say Abraham Lincoln because his depth, his wisdom, uh, his pain, uh, his wit, I think, would have been um, also extraordinary to, to to watch and feel. And um, and, and I think Bill Clinton. Um, I'm not saying his favorite. I, I'm answering is who would I most want to sit with, uh, because I think to, to sit with any one of those three, and also I guess Thomas Jefferson, would be just a a symphony of different personalities and ideas and, and a performance piece that would make it uh, really extraordinary. Wow. Fantastic. Um, if people want to follow you, if people want to get your books, if people want to invite you to lecture, how can they reach out? How can they reach you? How can my email you? is my name, guiltroy at gmail.com. My website is my name, www.guiltroy.com. Keep it simple. And, um, and, uh, and uh, let's continue the conversation. It's really been a delight. Um, the, 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 the time flew and you, uh, you, you both are exactly where we need to be, which is with juance, with thought, with passion, uh, with creativity, and with a sense of humor, which I appreciate. We, we appreciate you and, and those comments, of course, and we appreciate you taking from your very busy schedule and coming on the show. Um, and, and I personally always love speaking with historians because you get that, that breadth of uh, perspective that you don't always get from, uh, you know, uh, more, you know, recent perspectives on events. And of course, they're all uh, important. Uh, hopefully soon we'll have also um, kind of a more of a journalistic perspective on what's happening now, but to take this kind of deep historical perspective, to look at it as someone who has researched multiple presidents, as someone who can look at American history and Israeli history and Jewish history and kind of all uh, bring it together. I think this was uh, fabulous and, and we, we truly appreciate uh, you being on the show and uh, wish you a lot of luck in your endeavors. And I think at least 10, if not 15 book and op-ed titles came out of this podcast. (laughs) Great. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.